Yeah, your headset might do that. It's okay. it's the headset. Um, it's not really the microphone. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Your mics, your mic should be working pretty well. Um, so how's the uh, how's the apartment in West Philly? The the burp will definitely be uh, picked up. Yes. Here's what I would do because I'm mm-hmm. sure like the hard part is. When that starts working, right. I'm going to burp a couple of times. Yeah, just, you know, this, like... So I'll do a pause. I'll okay. Like, wait, do it. Give you So that way you can edit it out. Ah, okay. All right. So, just so you know, what I'm also trying to do is, like, have this be as, like, raw as possible. So you want the burp? So, like, the burps, yeah. I mean, like, this no, is... No, that's too raw. No, it, the, no, it can never be too raw. This is, like, full-on punk rock, like, 100%. Oh, you want, like... Oh, shit. Yeah, war, warts and all, man. Warts and all. Okay, so this is... You know, I'm going to make... we got to make a disclaimer. There's no connection to any work or any of my affiliations. Right, yes. That way I could speak freely. Although yes. the village is... I can pretty much say that that's cool. That's cool. Beautiful. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is episode... <coughs> punk rock. Punk, punk rock. The, the coughs are there. Uh, this is episode either two or four of the punk rock barbershop. There's a whole reason why I'm saying that. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens with the first two episodes. So, yeah, as you know, um, I am your host, Michael Robertson Reed. Um, today, we have Mr. Michael O'Brien with us. Greetings. We are coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, also known as Marion Anderson City. Nice. And um, uh, yeah, so the focus, black artists talking about their white influences and the conversations around that. Uh, so yeah, we have Michael O'Brien. Uh, how long have we known each other? We have known each other for... Actually, almost all of my time in Philly. Because we That's originally right. met at 19 at the Ritz. Yeah. Then you disappeared. I did. you trained me, and then you quit. Yes. <laughs> so that was like 2004. That was 2004. Yeah, 2004. Yeah. 2004. And the winter of 2004. Like and you January. you were 19 when you started working there? I was 19 there? when I started working there. That's crazy. See, what's interesting to me, one, is the fact that no matter who I'm hanging out with, if you know within reason i assume that everyone is my age so like i kind of don't know how old you are because i'm like well i'm 40 so he's i don't know he's he's 36 to 42 like i feel like you're younger than 36 i mean if you know i am i'm 33 wow that's like i'll be 34 in june june what june 13th nice that's a good day that's a that's a very good day great it was a great day yeah <laughs> um so yeah, so we've known each other since Prince was on the cover of uh, Ebony magazine on month. June thirteenth. Well, that month. Okay, that in month June. June. Um, like yeah. when he passed away, or no, recently? June of eighty five. Oh, June of eighty five. Yeah, oh, so yeah. when you were born? There, yeah, there was this thing on uh, Facebook for a minute that was. Oh, like, nice. Find uh, the Ebony magazine cover for the month you were born. Oh, nice, born nice, nice. So I went and looked, and I was excited. I was like, mm. That's right. Nice. Yeah, that's powerful. That's powerful. Guy. I'm also a Gemini. June is his birthday. Mm, Okay. Okay. I'm trying to think of who would have been on the cover. So I was born in January of 79. Um, Let's see if we can Google it. Yeah, Google it. My my guess is going to be this is not rooted in anything other than aspiration. Shaka Khan. Shaka Khan. Okay. 
I don't know. No, oh, oh, that, 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 that's your guess of that my guess. That was my guess. guess. No, my guess would be to bring it back to uh, 1970s basketball that we were talking about oh, earlier. Okay, where? Would be uh, Lenny Wilkins, who was the <coughs> coach of the Seattle Supersonics at the time, and he was the third black coach to win an NBA championship. They, won, was... the, they won the title in June of 79. What month were you born? January. I don't hear anything. Uh-oh. No, yeah, we can... Um... I just broke the headphones. No, it's all good. Just plug it in. Yeah, we can we can hear you. We oh, can okay, hear you. Dope. So, don't worry about you being heard. What month again? I'm sorry. January. Oh, listen. I think I'm just gonna go headphones. Okay, you're gonna go sans headphones. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they they weren't working yesterday for Homer, so. Homer Jackson. Homer Jackson, director of the Philadelphia Jazz Project, was here. Oh, what year? My bad. 1979. I did say that. So Michael O'Brien is looking at the Ebony magazine cover from January of 1979. Oh, it looks like it's Cicely Tyson. Cicely Tyson? Nice. All right. I can dig that. Yeah, January 79, Cicely Tyson. Kind of giving you, a, what's her name, Patricia Russian or Ruffin? Uh, who's Patricia Ruffin? She, uh, or I think it's Russian, maybe. She's a um, singer. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll take your word for You'll it. You'll know her songs when I show it. Well, he is looking. I'm looking that up, too. He's it. looking that up. There we go. She did, like, forget me not. Hmm. I'm sure if I heard it, I would. I would recognize it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. So actually, you know Will Smith's Men in Black. Mm-hmm. Oh that yeah. Sample. Gotcha. Is, See. Forget me now. All right. Oh yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. See, I knew you knew it. Right. Right. Yes. See, I thought you were saying forget me now. Oh. You're saying gotcha. forget me not. Yes. So, my bad. No, it's it is all articulation. Good. It it is so necessary when we are um, being recorded on microphones. Okay. So, um. Tell the people what, like, you know, uh, what your vocation is. You do work in the nonprofit sphere. You also have done, and I would imagine continue to do work as an artist of some sorts. Mm -hmm. So you can uh, talk about any of that. that yeah. So I've spent a lot of time um, at the intersection of public health and uh, social science, really, um, and art and art making and arts education, but also what um, has become known as social practice arts, right? art that's done with people in community settings, a lot of the work being co-defined by the people you're working with, mm -hmm. particularly around the issues and subject matter that you're trying to amplify or agitate or, um, uh, you know, educate people on whatever. Um, it's, it's a very much so like people centered practice, gotcha. right? You know, it really is like nothing without us, excuse me, nothing about us without us kind of a thing, Understood. you know? And so I've had the fortune to do that in Philly, do some of that in Miami-Dade County, travel the country and talk to people about these ideas and help folks design ways to be much more inclusive with their art space work and those spaces um 
I have also um, spent some time over the last couple of years developing my own business around consulting and also around like knowledge uh, and habit based like gaps mm-hmm. for organizations um, looking at like how to address issues of race, equity and inclusion in the workplace. How do you address issues of chronic, excuse me, chronic and like toxic stress. Really. Sure. Yeah. Um, both in, you know, the populations that you're serving, but also in your workforce that's helping you operationalize everything to achieve mission and vision. So, you know, it's been an interesting array of work um, for some time. And I'm grateful that I can keep art and creativity in the midst of all that. And so when you, (coughs) so when we met each other, 2004, you're 19 years old, you're attending University of the Arts. Yes. uh, Which for people who may or may not know listening to this, University of the Arts is the college that I attended. I have a BFA in acting. And we were working at an art house movie theater, you know, so for you Philadelphians, the Ritz Bourse. Um, so when so when you were at the Ritz, then were, were you thinking I'm going to be working as a full time artist? Like like what at that point in 2004, did you have an idea of what your what you wanted your career to be? Uh, I did, um, and I also knew it was like iterative, right? You know what I'm saying? So like, I'm saying like a lot. So yeah, uh, I, I I say you know all the time. So. Um, I knew that I wanted art to be present in my career. Um, I thought I wanted to be a songwriter. I still do, actually. You sure. know, when I think about it, like I want to, and, I, and I've been fortunate to, you know, do some like theater stuff. I got paid writing original content for young people and all kinds of stuff. So, um, I wanted to make impact though like i knew that at 19 like the world had problems Mm -hmm. serious problems that needed to be addressed that still need to be addressed right um and i think art has such a powerful capacity to do some of that addressing i don't art won't solve every issue um, but art is going to be a part of i think some of our best methodologies in terms of like even just framing and amplifying the issues right um more, it can do so much more than that, but at least, you know, <clears throat> I think that is a really good starting place for what we could be doing with art and artistic practices and process. Um, but I think what I was clear on back then was the world is full of inequity. The world is full of uh, histories that are constantly being denied um, the, and the impact of those things. Uh, like at 19, I would look at people like they were stupid if they didn't understand that slavery was still impacting black people. Right. Like I was just right. kind of like, fuck you. Um, I've since become more diplomatic. Sure. Um, you know, but I um, still address those conversations. Right? Like that's never gone away and that was always going to be there. In fact, back at the Ritz, I used to get into it with a couple of staff members who thought that I talked about race too much. Mm. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was funny because to me, I was like, I don't feel like I talk about race enough. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so k- kind of walk us through the journey. Um, what exactly was your major at UArts? Vocal performance and jazz studies. Vocal performance and jazz studies. Yeah. And so, and then that is housed within the School of Music. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Sir. Okay. 
Um, so kind of walk us through your origin story of how did you end up at that, you know, studying that major and having that somewhat inform how you were going to be moving through spaces in the world. But like, so connect us, sort of connect the dots for us sure. as, you know, how your life unfolded. So like, where, where are you from originally? Yeah, I'm, I'm born and raised in Hartford, Connecticut, strangest little spot. On the East Coast, um, and why, why do you say that? I know so little about yeah, Hartford. Mark Hartford, Twain has yeah, a house there. Sure does. Harry Beecher Stowe also okay. has a house there. Part two. So Hartford's strange to me because it has such a prominent history, or just like these random things like that, like that Harriet Beecher Stowe and Mark Twain were blocks away from mm-hmm. each other, and if even blocks, like it might just be like, I mean, well, two blocks is still blocks, yeah. but, you know, it might not be like 20 blocks, I mean, it's like they really lived in the same area. Um, uh, that Hartford was the insurance capital mm. of the world, that Hartford had the Colt factory was headquartered Oh, it was in the guard? The guard? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, that, you know, Hartford has some of the largest communities of the Caribbean diaspora. Really? Yeah. I mean, I get the best Jamaican, having now traveled the country, I literally get some of the best Jamaican food still Interesting. in Hartford, Connecticut. Wow. Okay. Right? Like there yeah. are times I've gone home and my mom's like, well, what do you want me to cook? And I'm like, well, you can cook these nice, but I got to hit like three spots before I go home. Wow, very you know, cool. And very bring cool. food back with me sometime mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I, it is it is a, that authentically good. Um, but Hartford also is still like, and not just Hartford, but Connecticut is predominantly white. Mm-hmm. And I grew up um, in heavy segregation, not knowing that until we moved when I was about 11 and all of a sudden now, I'm one of a few, 11 or 12, whatever it was, I'm a few, I'm one of a few black kids in a classroom, let alone an entire grade, let alone right. the entire school. And I was like, whoa. Yeah. But that's also the moment that I had a constant art class, music class for a grade, for choirs. I was like, oh, this is all kind of cool. There was this thing mm-hmm. called Interrel. I didn't know what that was. It was the inner elementary choir. It was audition mm. only of all the choirs made up in West Hartford. Was by this point we lived on the Hartford West Hartford borderline, so I had an option on like where I could go to school. My mom was like, "It's clearly going to school in West Hartford." So, um, yeah, I mean, it was just uh, all of a sudden I got to. I was invited by my music teacher to audition for this choir, and you know I was singing like the white kids around me at that time. Okay, so let, let's uh, yeah. let, let's let's go through a few things. So, sure. right, so you're you're born in Hartford. Uh, what year are you born? Eighty five. Eighty five. And so it sounds like you're saying you're like essentially in an like a mostly black section. Oh yeah, Hartford. yeah, yeah. Black and Puerto Rican, hundred okay. percent. And and you don't. There were a couple of white kids. Sure. A couple. Sure. Okay, but like the the idea of the. Connecticut stereotype of George H. W. Bush and sweaters. Yeah, I didn't around know that was a thing. Right, like I did not know that was a thing. Yeah. I saw that on television. Sure, more than I saw that in person. Gotcha. Ever. Gotcha. Growing up, and um, so and what's the 
like what's the 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 makeup in your house like you know mom dad brothers cousins yeah yeah i grew up with my mom and two older brothers okay okay um so, so then you're the youngest i'm the youngest you're of the three youngest. boys yeah and what what was your mom doing for work at the time yeah my mother was when i was born i think my mother i think she was working like not a factory job but it was like at some newspaper place or something or another. okay and then she left that to really raise us full time, but she did hair. Like that's okay. how she was entrepreneurial. Gotcha, gotcha. You know. Yeah, and you're um. So she had her own schedule. You know, it was a really. I don't want to give all my family business away, but there was uh, an unfortunate incident with a babysitter like, around the time that I was born, and. My mother has a history of victimization, so that was like the most devastating gotcha. thing for her. Okay, and she was like, "Hell nah, I'm gonna raise my kids." Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Man, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, nah. I mean, well, the good thing is, like, she, sh- it was a struggle. Like, mm-hmm. she gave up a lot to be able to do that. But my mother was there, and the um, I don't want this to sound arrogant at all, but just being brief and trying to make sure we hit everything, like the intelligence factor that I get a lot of credibility for in Philly and across the country comes from the seeds and the work that my mother Mm -hmm. did Mm -hmm. to establish a foundation for me that was built around reading and music and making and creativity and early entrepreneurship. Like my mother, I had this idea when I was eight, we used to do this stuff in the hood. We were sold ices, you know, Mm -hmm. Kool-Aid in a cup. Um, but like a lot of them sucked, and then a couple of places I liked, they stopped doing it, and then I kept buying these really bad ones. And I came home and they was like, "Ma, uh, if I could figure out a better way to make ices, can we can we sell these? Can I sell them? I think I can do this." And she was like, "Well, let's give it a shot." And we I mean we made it a whole project, right? Yeah. And I remember when I made my first hundred dollars that summer. Mm. And I was like, oh, snap, I'm rich. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was planning out how to spend my money. My mother just politely and kindly and sweetly was like, well, you got to buy more product. You got to, you know, reinvest some of this money so that you have a business. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, you're mm-hmm. done. You're not yeah. going to have anything left to sell. And I was like, oh, like such a huge um, eye-opening moment for me in thinking about the world and business. But my mother put that seed of entrepreneurship in me early that helped me navigate a career as a an artist and uh, as this now having my own consulting practice and blah, blah, blah. I think back to that and like I always had that spark there and could nurture it yeah. in my teenage years when I was doing professional theater work through, um, excuse me, my performing arts high school and other things that, w- that were happening at that time. But, you know, like that, my mother's sacrifices have set me up for such opportunity um, that I'm always conscious of it. Mm-hmm. Like there's mm-hmm. not a moment I yeah. think in my day when things are happening that like it doesn't at least cross my mind right. once or twice. Yeah. Um, but that's, you know, that we were growing up. That's what she was doing to, to make sure we were all right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And something that I, I find so powerful in <clears throat> talking to people thinking back on my own life is really understanding the degree to which things that are parents and yeah adult influences but you know primarily the the people that are raising you parents grandparents 
like the things that they do that like really they end up becoming so baked into your dna that you can't imagine a life without it like for me um we spent a lot of time with my grandparents my dad's mother and stepfather they lived like 10 minutes away from the house we lived in when we were in california so my grandparents would pick me up from school because my parents they worked out in like los angeles or beyond that so they didn't really get back into our town until like 6 30 or something so you know my grandparents were retired i went to their house and then someone would pick me up from there but you know my grandpa was like real old school like they they didn't have cable until like maybe 1998 or oh, something dang. yeah so like no cable <laughs> and, and my grandpa was very um you know he was he was of a different generation and since we were his step grandchildren, he ne- he didn't have any of his bio- he, he did not have any biological children, so he never really raised kids. So he was sort of like, no, like do this, do this, like not in a mean way, but he was he grew up in the depression, so he had right. a different set of priorities. But the reason why I'm mentioning that is, like at a certain point, the TV had to go off, and I had to do my homework, and. He watched the NBC Nightly News every night. They lived in a relatively small house, so no matter where I was, I could hear the news, and like he would have me come in and watch it with him, or I would just watch it out of curiosity. They had this; they had books everywhere in the house, so sometimes I'd be super bored, and I would go in the guest room because it's like I don't want to sit around with my grandparents and like you know listen to my grandpa talk about World War II. Like that's boring. So I'd be back in the guest room and just out of curiosity, just thumbing through all of the books that they had, and I remember. By the time I was in middle school or ninth grade, yeah, so, uh, no, like like seventh or eighth grade, and I knew who Malcolm X was, and I knew that there was a book, about, I knew that the autobiography existed, and I found my grandparents had an early copy. I don't know if it was from the 60s, maybe it was from the 70s, but it actually had pictures inside of it. So I remember like looking through the pictures, and it showed Malcolm as a little kid. It showed him during his street hustler phase. It showed him with a conch and with a zoot suit, and I'm like my mind is just trying to like reconcile all of it. You know, they, they always had an encyclopedia set. So I would just out of curiosity, just thumb through. And that's where a lot of my um, desire to just like know more stuff comes from. So my mother always had encyclopedias. Right? Mm, Britannica. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were a couple other ones. <clears throat> we also had the Bible mm, in mm-hmm. uh, picture story format. Um, and like from like four or five different publishers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like there, there was just so much literature of all kinds yeah. around. You know, I just wanted to understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, all right. So, so if I could add one mm-hmm. other quick yeah. thing, because I think I, I get a lot of respect from my friends for having like really great taste in music. That really comes from my mother. What was she listening? Oh to? man, my mother has like impeccable taste in music, and it's funny because like. I had to slightly discover more and more of it because at one point growing up, my mom was like, she had converted to Christianity, and so so was it or some, some, not some converted, the more, yeah. but like she came into mm-hmm, a more mm-hmm. active, I guess, Christian yeah. life. So and, so does that mean that some of the more uh, kind of cutting edge records went further into the closet, like you just a little bit, yeah. but she never like my mother knows good sounds mm-hmm, and good mm-hmm. music. I never got denied good sounds gotcha. and good music. You feel me? Yeah, yeah. She pushed me to the gospel stuff mm-hmm, too, mm-hmm. but there was always this like and yeah, 
you know, like um, yeah, yeah. So, 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 what's she listening to? Oh man, my mother. Like, I love Rance Allen. Right, he's a okay. um, he was on Stax Records. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, first record came out like '69, '70. Uh, but I knew his like older gospel stuff because mm, mm-hmm. I heard my mom listened to a bunch of it. But she would yeah. always give me this good history, right? Yeah, yeah. And like show me their older records, and I'm like, whoa, this mm-hmm. is funky and wild mm-hmm. and amazing. So you know, on the gospel side, I mean, it was a lot of oh, oh the Reverend James Cleveland, James Moore. Man, James Moore is uh, uh James Moore is a fantastic singer. Good God. Um, my mother used to listen to quartet music, right? My love okay. for harmony. Yeah. And I came from that. I didn't really care for gospel quartets that much, to be honest. Still don't. But, like, there's this nuance of, like, the way the arrangements work. Shirley Caesar, Tremaine Hawkins, Edwin Hawkins. Um, I mean, just this list of all these great gospel artists. I, 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 but, love, I literally know who... I don't know who any of these people are. But then are. the flip side is, like, Patti LaBelle mm, and, mm-hmm. of course, Aretha and the Jackson 5 mm-hmm. and... I mean, he's just na- Earth, Wind, and Fire. I mean, you name it. Um, Betty, Betty Wright. Uh, I, like, my mom loves The Temptations. Mm, mm-hmm. So, like, not just The Temptations, but Motown. Like, I got a really good exposure to Motown because of my mother's love for them. And, like, my mother's really good at, like, exposing me. And then, like, she knows I'm curious. So she'll let me mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. run off and yeah, listen and fill in, the, fill in the, yeah. the, the blanks. And, you know, my, one of my favorite moments with my mother... It was a couple. We used to go to the library all the time and listen to records. We listened mm. to like Sharon Lois and Bram, the Elephant Show. We listened to Kitty Records. We listened to all kinds of stuff, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. My mother also said she used to put headphones on her stomach mm-hmm. and she would read also. Those were the two things she did because I was like, really active in her belly. She mm-hmm. said, like, the mm-hmm. only things that would calm you down were when I read or when I put music on, which is fascinating because still to this day, those are the two things I think. I have the most in my life, like yeah. lots of books and lots of music. Um, and but there's this moment I remember we were in a record store. My mother and I used to go record shopping together too, um, and which I'm very jealous of because that's not something that I did with either one of my parents. I feel you. Yeah, no, I was there. Yo, my mom's the coolest. Lady. Yeah, that's like that's like super. <clears throat> that's super cool. I think it also helps that you liked the music that your mom listened to? Because I, I might have told you, I mean, my dad really only exclusively listens to jazz and mm-hmm. it's like, you know, hard bop sort of 1955 to 1965. That Oh, Sounds of Blackness. Mm. My mother loves Sounds of Blackness. My mom loves choirs. But Sounds of Blackness and Nesby, I mean, these, like, and it's interesting, right? Because that's Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis's mm-hmm. group too. Like, mm-hmm. so inadvertently like i'm reading all the credits right and i'm learning about all these folks and and just say it was it was amazing right anyhow we're in the record store and i'm in the used section my mother always taught me look at the used records used cds used records because people just give away gems Mm. and you can end up paying a dollar for a Mm well-kept gem Mm -hmm. right that would cost you twenty dollars right so then i find this pale bell live at the apollo record and like I had heard Patti LaBelle, of course, on TV. Yeah. And my mom plays on her records when I was a kid. And I was like, Mom, is this any good? And my mother just like chuckled and was like, you should just buy it. Wow. And yeah. I was like, really? She was mm. like, why don't you buy and listen to it and then come talk to me about it? Mm-hmm. Excuse me, man. I remember getting home and putting that record on. And by the end of the first two songs, I'm like standing on my feet in my room. We're like, whoa! Cause she, it was that. It is a remarkable record. Her voice just soars, mm. and the command and sheer, like, 
accuracy mm-hmm. of what she's mm-hmm. doing, but also like the spontaneous yeah. energy of it all. I mean, it was that thing still to this day. I will listen to that record because it is just a shining moment of like black brilliance yeah. Yeah. that actually is not um, as much as it's unique for the music industry amongst black people. You know, it's it's more, and I don't mean this to diminish Patty's greatness because there is no singer like Patty LaBelle, but the dimensions of that greatness exist in our community in ways that we will never be recognized for in the masses. Um, you know, there's this report that just came out about how much black women have contributed to culture in ways that have been monetized, which mm. I found really, I haven't read the whole thing mm-hmm. yet. I just started skimming it, but it's fascinating, right? It's like that, that to me is the black experience in America is like, we will, we have overly contributed oh, oh. our fair share. Oh, very much so. And, <laughs> and have been robbed. And, yes. You know, yeah. like it's also been extracted and stolen and the yes. whole nine. And... Yes. Um, and, you know, and one of the things that I think will continue to be an issue unless there is a, like a deep, deep, like uh, psychological and cultural and sort of just like historical unpacking by wide swaths of white America and this also has to be mixed with like a massive demographic transformation, like massive, is that um, so many things that are even considered uh, like cutting edge in white America, it's like a lot of it originates in black America, sometimes 30 or 40 years beforehand, right. even down to, um, and I, I can't take, I won't take credit for this because someone else pointed this out to me where it's like, yeah, uh, well, like Grace Jones was doing the Lady Gaga thing, absolutely in the right. '80s, yeah. and then to bring it to Patti Labelle, like the band Labelle with you know Patti and Nona Hendrix, yeah. and uh, you know, I, uh, I think Stephanie Sarah Bird, uh, Sarah, Sarah Nash, okay, I yeah. think. Okay, yeah, I, I don't I know who the third person is. Um, yeah, but like like that's kind of the precursor to even before Grace Jones yeah. to, to Gaga, yeah, and, and and it's and what's also, um interesting and very true and sad and all of that is that so many times when we do it it's like this weird uh kind of goofy it's a punchline it's mm-hmm. a punchline to a lot of white america but then when it is really internalized and appropriated by white america it's this really powerful breakthrough thing mm-hmm. um and even so, uh, you know, so when Homer and I were talking yesterday um, uh, in the interview and, you know, we were talking about, you know, uh, just he knows people in the Sun Ra Orchestra and just like, you know, uh, like a lot of Sun Ra's work where it's considered goofy by a lot of white people and by a lot of black people. But what Sun Ra is was doing is super revolutionary because, I mean, it's one of the um, as far as I know, and I might be wrong, but like one of the early documented on film manifestations of what a lot of us refer to as Afrofuturism. Hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I recently watched a, a movie that the um, that was made about the, uh, the Sun Ra Orchestra. And in the beginning, Sun Ra is walking around talking about how black people literally have to go to Saturn because we cannot get peace and acceptance on planet Earth. That's a very profound statement. Yeah. It's a very profound statement, and it's very true. Yeah. 
um, when I was in the audience, and the audience was probably 90% white. Like, they did a screening of it down at the Prince Music Theater, or whatever the Prince is now referred to. So this was like three weeks ago. The audience is like 90% white, and people are like laughing at that because they're like, ah, that's funny. Like, he's on Saturn. It's like, mm, it's it's kind of gallows humor, but like, no, like, this is a real thing. Like, yeah. what he's saying is that there's literally nowhere on planet Earth that black people can just have their full humanity just accepted right or even just acknowledged not even accepted. and we and we're always in this predicament where the results of our humanity our culture Mm -hmm. inventions whatever it's completely commodified it's completely you know stripped and put into the you know extractive capitalist Mm -hmm. you know world that we live in and we don't get to wear the benefits of it fully even for our own cultural yeah. well-being. And that's just, that's an active part of my journey as the older I get and the, some of the places and spaces I choose to work. Um, because that's that's just, we, we have to use the tools that we have in the 21st century, of which there are many now. Yeah, uh, We can use them to reorganize that space for ourselves. But absolutely, I think he's absolutely right. And it's true. I think a lot of white people, and not just white people, but a lot of... Um, Folks who have not had to experience a marginal a marginalization, a mm-hmm. hyper marginalization and segregation uh, in their experience uh, of, of of being an American. Yeah. Um, because you can be born relatively middle class on up and of color, um, and still escape certain things you don't get to escape it fully because you're still of color yeah and at some point somebody's gonna remind you of that yep and make sure it's very very clear Mm -hmm. right happens to me yeah (laughs) like once every six months oh that happened right okay gotcha gotcha you know but it is possible to be in a space where you know that doesn't have to cross your mind that much Mm -hmm. yeah um you know, so anyhow, we we've got work to do because even I always hold space, and, I, and it's funny. I've been gotten arguments, not arguments, but had really interesting uh, debates and um, sharing of meaning with people around a comment that I make that I'm more comfortable with saying every day. The older I'm getting, it's like I do hold space for. Um, so it's like Nipsey, right? Mm-hmm. Nipsey passed. Nipsey said some pretty homophobic things. Um, or had some stances that were um, a bit homophobic. And that, and so yeah, it bothers me as a human, but I always hold space and have more energy to discuss and challenge in a loving way and work with black people and or people of color who have been hyper marginalized around trying to close some of those gaps mm-hmm. because it's actually that divisiveness that allows that mass manipulation of yeah. our culture to take place. And we're growing up in a world where that cognitive dissonance of our humanity being denied, but everybody extracting from us mm-hmm. over and over again. And then there are these like lifelines that get thrown out to some of us for varying mm-hmm. You know, uh, identifiers, right? Oh, your test scores are really high. Ooh, there's this. Oh, you're talented, or that. Blah blah blah. You can blah. make us money, you right? Speak well. Yeah, exactly. We 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 need three of you, and I'm super comfortable around you, right? Story and, of and, my life. And so, you know, 
that to to live your life with some scarcity or to live your life afraid that you're going to go back into scarcity if you've come out of it or that you know your kids will go there if you don't do x y and z and you got to deal with your blackness in varying formats and in terms of like work and schooling and this and that and just trying to walk down the street um and and then trying to make sense of an embodied history and meaning like that's just so much psychological mental and physical you know uh like acrobaticism for lack of a better Mm -hmm. word right that like that's where i have the space for someone like a nipsey where i you know unfortunately he died early but like i had the space for him to be like that's shitty and i don't agree with that but i can hold intention that you're stances need to evolve and you're saying things that are hurtful to a lot of the black people you care about. Yes. But on the flip side, you are legitimately building up a community Mm -hmm. and a community that a lot of people have refused to come into and help build up. So like, like how do we hold that? Like, let's hold that space for people. I can hold that space for people of color to iterate forward. It's, it is harder for me to do that with older white folks. Sure. Understandable. 50 and up, I'm kind of mm-hmm. like, yeah, and, you, and you're talking reckless. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I don't really. And and I, I think that there's something completely fine about like, that's not a priority. I don't have the energy for it. Um, if, if you really want to seek out, you know, if that hypothetical 50 year old and up white person wants to seek out venues to really progress, there are multiple entities right. that they can go to. Absolutely. Multiple entities Whereas the, you know, the Nipsey's of the world have very few and, and so many people are sort of like, mm, like looking askance, myself included. I mean, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll be totally honest. I knew very little about him. Um, and, and I just have my own, um, challenges with the slice of black America that he represents. I mean, and, and these are all just like internal things that like, I just have to make peace with like, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but you know, th- th- there was a lot of a narrative that I projected onto him just based on how he dressed, um, what I assumed his lyrical content was. Um, a lot of that was not necessarily well founded, and I've you know I've sort of done some deeper dives, and it's like oh like there, these are things that like I actually do find objectionable, and these are things that I find very laudable, and these are things I find extremely laudable, and like kind of throughout it all, one of the things I've had to for myself, I've come to the realization of is who is to say I would act any different in that same environment? Mm-hmm. You know, the, because for me, I've kind of just gone along with what everyone does around me. I've been lucky to the degree of the things that other people do around me play well in America and they give me entree into a certain world. Um, but like, that's just kind of the luck of the draw that I stepped into. Um, and so, yeah, I just I say that to say that the Nipsies of the world, their humanity is questioned to a much greater degree Absolutely. by a greater amount of people, even those of us who really do think that we are working in the best interests of the community. Absolutely. Like, you know, I mean, I think I do, but I I looked askew at him a lot, a lot, you know, and I have to be honest about that because, I mean, it's... And I appreciate that honesty because that's how we heal, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know... I don't know how we become the mass collective that we need to be to really assure for our own posterity and well-being because white America will not do that for us. That doesn't mean there are not white people and whole coalitions of white people Mm -hmm. that don't care about our posterity. But the experience of being a non-white person in this country, not just black, 
but a non-white person has been that they will let white people legislate for their own health, well-being, and Absolutely. posterity. They bend the law for their own health, well-being, and posterity. And when non-white people start looking like they are galvanizing and organizing themselves together, like the Black Panthers were doing very early in their um, introduction into you know the social political landscape, it was shut that shit down. Yeah, it's frightening. To right? Them. It's absolutely frightening. It's absolutely And there were poor white groups coming together mm-hmm. with the Black Panthers, with in coalitions of indigenous Americans. Like it, it is such a fascinating story. And these are children and young teens in early 20s, right? Like yeah. the oldest person was like 20, like five or yeah. six, right? So it's just a fascinating uh, world when we think about like these conversations that are really uncomfortable, but the necessity of them being more prevalent or more pressing now yes. in 2019, 2020 with the amount of technology and blah, da, 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 da. Like, I'm, I love the fact that billionaires just do- donated to the rebuilding of the, that classic cathedral because it just proves the absurdity of where we're at and how much these, where my social science hat comes in, right? all the bias mechanisms and triggers on the inside that motivate behavior, mm-hmm. right? Like we've got to take that apart because here's a big old massive building. It's great. It's a symbol for a lot of people. Tons of history all about it. It's already insured, guys. Right, yeah. So where's that money going? Like what's really happening right now? Like I don't really get it, right? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, and... It, I gotta use the restroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How? Uh, yeah. Raw. And what I think is, you know, uh, is uh, super interesting. You know, because I mean, I'm, I haven't, you know, I don't really watch the news that much. Um, so you know, I don't really know that much about what's going on with the church and the rebuild. You know, all of that. I mean, but the the thing is, is that you know, with situations like that, it's the the it's not the money it's the emotion behind the money it's it's the fact that this you know this building is an institution it is a cultural it is a piece of cultural iconography and so even if people know that the insurance money is going to take care of it like the 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 physical manifestation will be rebuilt it's like people will if certain people have the financial means to contribute in some way to the rebuilding of it, even if it's a psychological contribution, like it's it's more about the giver and like what their values are, and of like, you know, part of the whole thing. It's like the reason why I have this money is that I can give to these things. You know, so I, I yes, can I think this is where we have to have larger conversations in the twenty first century, because we are marveling at a church that got burned down. But we will not marvel at the wonders of marine life that's literally being destroyed. Like literally. Yeah, absolutely. Coal, coral reefs being destroyed Mm -hmm. that might not ever come back. There's this great article about how um, there is, I think off of the coast of Mexico, don't quote me on it, um, the coral reef that came back to life. But it took time and they had to do some very specific things. It's a fascinating story because typically that just doesn't really happen, right? And so... What's fascinating to me is that like we will marvel at man-made things that are um, very fragile and entire ecosystems that have more innovation and creativity at work in them than any of us could ever think up and muster um, and take decades, sometimes centuries for them to fall apart 
are being destroyed yeah. and we won't put a dollar into that, right? This is a question you're absolutely right about value and et cetera, but there's this one tricky thing we've done with our extractive capitalist, you know, colonized mindsets is we've elevated having lots of money to a position or a kind of positionality that means informed. And that's not true. Just because uh, ex- you explain have, that for me. I'm not just sure because you I... have a lot of money does not mean you're informed sure, on sure. all the sectors that that money could help in. But oh, absolutely. What we do absolutely. is go. Oh, you've made uh, you know seven billion dollars. You now have the opportunity or the funding to give it away. What are your thoughts and solutions in? X and Y, Z fields in this area over here. And that's wild. Mm -hmm. In fact, the best writing I've read on this is the opening forward of Decolonizing Wealth that was written by, uh, I believe, the uh, wife of one of the sons of Warren Buffett. Mm -hmm. Or the two wrote it together. Um and it, it's it's fascinating because she talked about all of a sudden we just received all this money, you know, and then uh, <laughs> all of a sudden we're just in these rooms where we're like, we don't know the answers to that stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't even know that oh, issue. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? But th- I applaud them for that kind of transparency because most people do not do that. No. It's, it's like, it reminds me. We have, we have me... An, entire foundations that are sort of oh. built upon. I made a lot of money in, you know, so let's just make stuff up. I made a lot of money in manufacturing shoes. I made billions of dollars in manufacturing shoes. Because of that, I am now an expert on how to save, you know, like the mating habits of tigers. I give money, you know, the the mating habit of Tiger Foundation asks me for money. And then I look at their proposal and say, yes, you are worthy or not. It's like, you don't know anything about that which i'm cool with like if people just are just sort of like well like this is the model that we have like we got tons of money we want to give it to people like we want to give it to people that we think are doing the right thing we kind of don't know what that is it's like i think that that is it's like that's pretty shitty but at least it's honest and if you're willing to like learn then we can work with you and like you're starting from a point of like yeah we kind of don't know what we're doing but we're trying but help us learn as opposed to like, no, 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 we know what we're doing. We, we made a billion dollars manufacturing shoes. So we're education, we're experts on education policy. We're right. experts on prison reform. Yeah. Uh, it's like that old mandate of heaven idea. Right? Meaning? Um, that rulers had the mandate of heaven to rule. Mm, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you see this in many continents, cross cultures. Um, Maybe that served us at one point, but that kind of thinking has it has roots here too, right? Like yeah. we we forget we are a bunch of Brits who experimented, yeah, and I guess it went well, yeah. right? You know, quote unquote well. Um, and so while we try to act like American life, culture, philosophy has its own like unique brand. It is it is it is actually kind of like the relationship of Christianity to Judaism. It was birthed out of mm-hmm. yeah. a European, particularly British, yes. way of life, yes. living, thought, mm-hmm. policy, idea, I mean all of yeah. that, right? And so 
we also have the Puritan beliefs that are here and meritocracy mm-hmm. and yes. the deserving poor. And, you know, so we have all these myths, the mythos, the larger American mythos is not uniquely American. America just kind of made it uniquely organized around the groups of people it was subjugating and the groups of people it needed to eradicate. Yeah, we've put our stamp on To it. take over this land, you know. So we've, and again, going back to the comments I made around like, my a space for the Nipsey hustles to like engage in conversation where you know people can look at you and see you as other like we were talking about earlier no matter what you did yeah it can you can still be seen as other even if you have identity points in common mm-hmm. with those folks you know like I still have space for that because of all of that oh very much you know so. what yeah. I mean yeah definitely um and something that you know, I have found I've I've said this to many people is that for me, like the world that we're in now and just the the feeling that the world is turning, you know, there are lots of people who feel like the world is turning upside down. And like and it is. I'm very calm because I've been dealing with my version of these issues since I was seven years old. Mm-hmm. Where it's just the idea of, well, I'm I'm living in this all black neighborhood in California, but I'm going to a mostly white school and most of my friends are white. And my grandfather, who's very light skin and who could, if he shaved his head, could pass for white is telling me that I'm too white and that's super confusing. And I mean, like my grandparents were so light skinned. I thought my, I thought my grandma was white until I was 13. I legit like, and she, I, I asked my grandparents, when I was a little kid, I said, why are you white? They said, no, we're, we're just light-skinned. I didn't know what that meant. So I'm like, I have a white grandma. Mm. Like, And I would just say it like, you know, I'm wearing a red shirt. I have a white grandma. Like, I thought my grandma was white until I was in eighth grade. Um, and then, you know, living in Northern Virginia in high school and, you know, being super insulated in, like, white culture. But, like, that wasn't that weird for me because most of my friends in California were white anyways. And I'm listening to Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and... I'm listening to music that when I went to Christian elementary school, like my teachers were like, this is satanic music. And now I'm listening to it. I'm like, it's super harmless. Then I come to Philly and just, so all that just to say that like, I've had such a like mishmash of experiences and I've really had to engage in these mental and cultural acrobatics just for my own sanity, just to be able to like, here's what I have to do to go to the movies with these people so the world that we're in now, I'm like, this is actually very easy for me. And I'm very comfortable being in these spaces and dealing with these very conflicting ideologies or even finding out things about people that it's like, I love you as an artist and I find this very reprehensible. Right. You know, like like a, a a band that I really love, this band Bad Brains, who is like, you know, they're one of the the early black punk bands and they're really considered the godfathers of hardcore music like taking punk to hardcore super homophobic super homophobic to the point where they have a song called don't blow bubbles that everyone pretty much agrees is basically saying gay people deserve to have aids they've brought it upon themselves that's a mind fuck but like they're practicing rastafarian so it's like oh like they're super spiritual but it's like well actually like that you know most of my people are from the South, so I do not know Caribbean culture that well, but what I have heard is that there is a massive strain of homophobia. Oh, yeah. And, you know, femophobia. Uh, part of my feminist Caribbean. Yeah. I'm yeah. just saying, like, being in 
Connecticut also being mm-hmm. huge Caribbean diaspora, there's a lot of homophobia. Yeah. There, yeah. So like that was mind blowing for me, and it's like, so how do I deal with these people who I really revere, who are saying things like "Bati boy" and and just saying all this crazy shit, and like the this one interview that the um that the guitarist from Bad Brains gave, and some people are like, oh, you know, he was, it was tongue-in-cheek and it was super flippant, but they asked him, you know, they said, there's a there's a lot of controversy about this song, Don't Blow Bubbles, so what's the song about? And he says, oh, the point of the song is don't be a blank. And it's like, all right. So it's, I'm just sort of like, that's crazy for me yeah. to to think about. Um, So something that I want to do is, I, I want to like tie all these pieces together and and learn about some particular things with you so you're in this all-black world in Connecticut, in, in Hartford, and you said around 12 years old, you end yeah, up going 11. to like a, a, yeah. a, a different school, like different in every yeah, possible in every way. Yeah, possible way. <laughs> but it's also very like a artistically heavy school or like there's a big artistic influence. Yeah, there's a big arts presence. Um, okay, so, so what, what, what's this school? How did you end up there? Yeah, we just moved. So you moved from Hartford to like another. I literally park. moved. Uh, if you're driving five minutes down the street, five minutes, but a whole whole world. Oh my gosh! And are you still in Hartford, or are you actually in West Hartford? No. Well, by this point, literally, it's it's West Hartford, but like if you cross the street, you're in Hartford. Literally. Gotcha. Gotcha. Right? Okay, so that's why, like, I could have gone to Hartford public school still sure because i've been there they would have let me but my mother was clear on like where (laughs) i was going um and so and so the the, this decision to move there what is the what is the motivation for your mother in moving to this part of the city and working to get you into this particular school my mother had always driven by that school and she said and she would go like michael's gonna go to that school michael go to that school michael go to school so you ask her that was the Lord mm-hmm. <laughs> and prayer. You know, and speak, speaking it into existence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's maybe it's a little bit of the secret. Your, your yeah, mom was yeah, an early yeah. practitioner of the Absolutely. secret before it was a thing. Absolutely. So um, we had to move. That's really what happened. Okay. And my mother was looking for places to move, and I don't think she wanted to move very far. Sure. Um, so, yeah, was, we can go out to spot five minutes down the, okay. down the road. Yeah. Um, that was a life changer. So and so uh, and is is it a is it a performing arts? School? No, it's a magnet school. Okay, but yeah. but there there's uh but there's some really like solid arts programs. West Hartford there. Public Schools in general just have some solid arts programs. Okay. It's an investment that I mean they have the capital to make that gotcha. investment, but it's gotcha. an investment across the whole school district that there's just a really robust arts presence okay. educationally now at, um, at this point in your life are like are you doing school plays are you like no you that happened the next year because okay. oh, i'm singing in my room i mean i'm probably like putting on plays in my room sure my mother's got uh songs i wrote when i awesome. used to sit in church when i was like six awesome. and seven years old one of them was actually not that bad when i read it I nice. was, and yeah, i don't yeah. even really remember writing right. songs back then but like yeah no i mean i art was always my thing you and know? and and part of this is is it purely just sort of like it's it's kind of just what you do. Like you're not even necessarily thinking like I'm gonna go out and perform this, but it's like I oh no use- yeah, it was just me being me. Mm-hmm. Like my mother just never denied that. She always encouraged it. Nice and always yeah. Like for her, 
she always says to me, like, I just watch that stuff emerging. She's like, I knew in my gut, too. Like, she says through prayer, right? But she, yeah. she knew in her heart that, like, I, art was going to be a big part of my life. She always knew I'd also be an intellectual, but she knew that art would be a big part, she always said. So, yeah. she, I, so when it was emerging, she just encouraged it and grew it and wanted me to have opportunities. And so by the time I was in sixth grade, I did... We had a school play. Oh, snap. We had um, um, student council. Mm, and mm-hmm. I'd only seen that on TV. So sure. I was like, oh, snap, I'm running. What can I run yeah, for? Yeah. Vice president? I'm running for vice president, right? Like, I was hype. And I took advantage of all these things that I just never had. Or like I said, I only saw on TV. And I was in this ultra-white world. But <laughs> I was and, figuring it out, you know? And so and in the ultra-white world... To the degree that you can remember, like, do you know what you were thinking when when you were there? What was it like? Yeah, was it like I this never is felt crazy, that or? I could measure up. People had money. Where I went to school, people had money, and and where we where the school was located. Okay. And just driving to school on the bus every day was a steady reminder of how much money gotcha. I did not have, gotcha. and the kind of wealth and access. And network of life and neighborhood just living and mm-hmm. regularness mm-hmm. that my regular was very different. Regular right. and normal did not yeah. mean the same things. And to me that they did to these folks. And there were some people of color, of course, peppered in on this basis in these spaces, but they were predominantly white and were predominantly, you know, nice middle class on up wealth. Yeah. Some folks were much wealthier than middle class yeah. by far. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but that was that I was in that school system till I graduated. Like and graduated from high school. High school? Yeah. Uh, how was it like, how was it making friends? Oh, man. Like if I look back at myself objectively back then, I was a hot ass mess. I'm sure like I had talent, but I didn't know how to make friends. And I was so awkward too because like I hated where I was at like I never enjoyed going to school there it was a culture shock for me I didn't grow up with that many white people so going into a space where I always felt less than never felt good enough I couldn't afford the clothes that everybody else Mm -hmm. was wearing Mm -hmm. um Everybody knew each other. People mm-hmm. were younger siblings of mm-hmm. these older siblings who were also friends, and their parents all knew each other and hung out. I didn't. I there were two buses, two or three buses that were known for coming from like the black side or the Puerto Rican side of town near Hartford, and we didn't. We weren't in their worlds like that. Like if you played sports, you crossed into their world. You know, art, I kind of cross into their world. But, like, you know, I was trying to make friends with people I don't think who knew how to be my friend and didn't know they didn't know how to be my friend. Mm. And I also mm. probably had way too many expectations about what friendship should look like from mm. TV and shit. Because mm-hmm. that's what I wanted because I was also having these experiences. So it was kind of like, in, in terms of, like, the art and the this and the play, it was like, oh, well, I guess the friendship should also kind of look like this because that's what they look like right. on TV. And that was not what I got. However, I did have really great friendships that I still like my best friend. I met at 10 and we're still friends to this day. Um, and I love that guy. Um, Puerto Rican. Yeah. And Portuguese. 
um, but he is family to forever, right? Mm, like mm-hmm. beyond this lifetime. Yeah. And, you know, I have other friends I've made during that time, but like not that many. Sure. You know? Yeah. Well, and something that you just, you said that I think is really profound, which I've never heard it articulated, but I think it's so poignant is what you were saying about like, they didn't even know how to be your friend and they didn't know that they didn't know. Because I, you know, as I, as I look back, you know, on just my experience where my parents were very overt in the opposite direction of our son is going to this, you know, these majority white schools and like literally the first day of school or like when, definitely when, when it came time to invite people over for birthday parties, sleepover parties, my mom would literally say, how many black friends are you inviting? And you know, I'm eight, so like, I don't really get it. But one of the things that I'm, I'm realizing as I, as I got older is that it's like, you know, for certain slices of black America that had just very different, um, just social codes and social environments, it's like, well, like socially, like the way that you get down with your friends is so different from the way I get down with my friends. One is not right or wrong or better, but the social cues are actually different. So even if we're trying like consciously, like it's not matching up. And when you put that in like the, the soul of an 11 year old who can't even explain like timmy why are you so angry like when right. your little sister changes the channel i don't know it's like it's crazy so yeah, yeah. that's oh man you're once again you've blown my mind uh, which, <laughs> which i love um all right so something i'm wondering about is uh all right so it's it comes time to look at colleges you apply to university of the arts how does that happen? So for high school, I um, did half days. I did half days at Conard High School, which is one of two public high schools in West Hartford, Connecticut. Um, and then I did the other half of my day at uh, the Greater Hartford Academy of the Arts, which is an audition-based uh, school, um, performing arts. Well, originally just performing arts, but they expanded over the years, so... Um, an arts high school, and I was a theater major there, had a musical theater focus. But then that did a lot of singing there, and I. And and uh, if 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 we can if we can also time out for, uh, for a second or or sort of understand some things like yeah. how do you how do you get into like the world of theater? So you know, so your mom is playing a lot of music for you when you're a kid. You're like you know you're you're writing songs. Two things you, you, I did you audition a... for a play, but like it seems like this is all kind of like merging at some point. Yeah, so my happen? oldest brother went to the Greater Hartford Academy of the Performing Arts before he became mm-hmm. Greater Hartford Academy of the Arts. I was five or six. He was like 15, 14, 15. and he was in a play. We went and saw it, and I was like, I want to do that. Mm. That's mm-hmm. amazing. I want to do that. Um, and I saw Fame. Mm-hmm. I was like... The movie or the show? The movie. Okay. And I was like, yeah, I want to do that. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. I really wanted to go to a performance high school so I could do the scene Hot Lunch. Like, that Okay. Was, yeah. Always, yeah. This dream I had. <laughs> That's awesome. We were going to just break out in song and dance on tables and somehow end up yeah. in the middle of the street on top of a cab. Mm-hmm. Like, it just... That looked like the best experience. Um, so I knew, I knew, well, yeah, when I went to middle school, I was like, I'm going, the closer we got to high school, I was like, I'm going to the Academy of the yeah. Arts, right? Like, and I remember it, 
wanted to audition in eighth grade for my ninth grade year. And my mom and my guidance counselor were like, I think you should just do the first year of high school and adjust and da, da, da. And I was so fucking mad. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my mom listens to this. I just said the F word. Yeah, you know. I love you, mom. But Parents, you have to know I that we use uh, colorful so language sometimes. I mad. And I still, I went my sophomore year, like, cause I wasn't, I knew where I was supposed to be and mm-hmm. I was supposed to be there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it changed my whole life. Um, in the right kinds of ways. Um, and w- what, what was the, uh, like the racial demographics of, of this school? I don't know them, uh, from like, a a, a census standpoint. Sure. How did it feel? Oh, no, it was super freaking diverse. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Good amount of black people, white people, folks of Latinx background. Um, There was Asian American students. There were students across the queer spectrum. I had a teacher who was trans. I had teachers who were across the queer spectrum. Um, It was cool. Okay, so like like, truly... Truly diverse. Now, is is this also the first time that you're meeting like a, a, a kind of large swath of artistically inclined black folk or or was that present in your neighborhood? Because I mean, like, like, that's a good question. Yeah. I mean, like, I grew up in churches and stuff. and Like, there's always a lot of good music talent mm-hmm. at churches. I did my first play at church. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I think to be black is to have a lot of culture that doesn't get formally recognized okay. <laughs> right and have these cultural experiences yeah. that don't get formally recognized and quantitated or, or, or um, quantified um, this was the first time I was around people that loved art as much as I do or more mm, that mm-hmm. was new in general mm-hmm. um, I was always the kid at school who loved art kind of a bit more than a lot of people. I won't say the most, but mm-hmm. definitely easily identified as someone that loved the arts, loved art, was in the choir. Like I was in, I was the only, I was definitely the only black boy in um, the select choir in middle school that got to travel. And like, so we went to Tennessee. We went to, we, I performed at Carnegie Hall. Really? Eighth grade. Whoa! Yeah, why is this, this the first time hearing part of this, this choir? Oh, I, yeah, certain things are yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah. Really I mean, and like, how is it going to come up casually? Yeah, and like, and I was fucking like thirteen, turning right. fourteen. Does it? Yeah. I don't even. I'm thirty four. That doesn't. It shows up nowhere on my resume, not once. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, I also think it's interesting, like stuff that you do at thir- I feel like everything's kind of annoying when you're thirteen. So, like, I I'm sure my friends who grew up without money get super annoyed when I mention that I've. By the time I was thirteen, I'd probably been to Mexico six times oh, wow. because I, you know, I lived in a suburb of Los Angeles. It's quicker to go from LA to Mexico than it is go from Philly to Pittsburgh. My parents prioritized vacation. Lots of times it was, you know, within the U.S. Uh, you know, car trips, train trips. Um, but like, yeah, it's it's significant. But but at a certain point, it's like, ugh. Mexico again. <laughs> I just want to play Nintendo. Right, so, right, right, right. No, I hear you. <laughs> that's real. Um, that's not me trying to humble brag. So no, no hate mail, please. I'm just trying to be honest. Yeah, no, I hear you. Not trying to put people down. Same so on the Carnegie Hall, and like it was one of those moments where like I knew where I was at, 
and it was such a big moment. And I made sure to like stay away from mm. like certain. At one moment when we were backstage, I didn't really want to be around everybody else, mm-hmm. and I had because I wanted my own moment with like the space. Yeah. Because the space had this its own energy yeah. and history, and I knew the black people who had crossed that stage, and and I was just like. I'm coming back. I don't know how or when. I don't know yeah. if I'll be singing. I don't know if I'll be talking, but like, I'm coming back. Yeah. And I, I don't know how long it's going to take me to get back here, guys, but I'm coming back. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, and I said that. And I, uh, yeah, it's just been wild. I've been fortunate to have so many wonderful experiences in my life. So, um, all that being said, like, so this is an interesting trip down memory yeah. lane, even. But yeah, no, like, the high school piece was great, you know? But like, I was used to being, again, that guy, particularly the black guy who loved art and got publicly recognized as being good at art or being good at music, theater, whatever. I was also told in eighth grade that um, the main reason I didn't get the male lead was because I just didn't look the part, Mm. didn't look the vision, Mm -hmm. right? And so that was an early reminder, too, of Mm -hmm. like, right, Mm these industries are trash, and that's what it is, and like... Being entrepreneurial is probably going to be my best bet. Yeah. Like, as much as I appreciate being handed opportunity, I also like generating my own. Um, And I, I, my life has been a mix of both. Mm, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's powerful. And so, so it really sounds like you're, you're having really like this very powerful growth through your artistic evolution. Seeds are planted in your mind, either that you're, I think sometimes conscious of, sometimes not. Like it's just kind of in your often DNA. not conscious. Yeah. yeah, I wish I could say there was like all this purposeful development uh, during my teenage years, but I was just trying to like make sense mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the world. Well, and and I, I think that well, at least for me, like as I look back on my life, the the decisions that I've made, even I'm usually not engaging in like deep critical sort of frontal lobe thinking. What I'm really doing is following my emotional compass of like, oh, this thing feels right. So it's like, you know, I go five steps forward and it's like, oh, it, it still continues to feel right. Mm-hmm. And then maybe sometimes I'm in a thing and I'm like, oh, this is cool. I don't know if this is the thing. And then I sort of like remove myself back from it. And it's like, oh, okay. You know, but yeah, I, I think that's what most people do. Yeah. Of like, you know, and I think that's why, you know, people are sort of like, it's crazy, but like it all wound up working out. And it's like, yeah, I, I don't think it's, that crazy to the degree of I feel like people make their best decisions when they like they really the emotional compass is the primary thing that drives them and then the intellectual piece I think comes into like okay so how do I make this all work with family relationship children I want to you know uh, pay back my uncle the $10,000 he loaned me to get into school or whatever. So, yeah, I, I feel like your story is... I, I feel have, like, you, yeah, you're, more, you're nobody, being more profound than you're, I appreciate you're letting that. on. I had nobody in my life that I could ever borrow $10,000 from to do anything with school. It's fascinating, too, because when I started paying back loans, you know, they would say things like, well, don't you have, like, an honor and uncle you can just borrow ten dollars or $15,000 from? I said, no, no, no I don't know... Yeah where you think I come from, but my mother grew up in foster care. No, I don't. I do not have a network of wealthy individuals just sitting around or people that have expendable income just sitting around. And I think there's that's a large assumption for a lot Mm -hmm. of folks is that if you've gone to college, you're coming from a network where people have a home 
to take out a loan against yeah. to finance yeah. college or finance other options in helping you, you know, mitigate this adult debt based experience. And that's just not real and not true. And we've got to, that, that's classism 101. Oh, absolutely. We won't name it as such, right? And like yeah. reorganize our practices in those worlds um, accordingly. But again, and, yeah. And, and I, I do think that some people are are not aware of the classism that lives within that because it's it's such normalized thinking because i i think that for a lot of people i think a, if a lot of people across many racial spectrums across many geographic areas if they followed like a week of of your life and then they heard your biography there would be a massive amount of co of cognitive dissonance because I think that they would assume that you are coming from a at l lowest uh, air quotes you know economically speaking like a you know a a working class sort of like f yet financially robust environment because intellectualism and intellectual curiosity, financial affluence, home ownership, and generation like multiple generations of college degrees are kind of conflated with each other of like a, a person of your economic background can't be as intellectually curious as you are because it's so scrapping and like and and a lot of times it's it's um sort of like benevolent classism at least you know like it there's no m malevolent intention but some of it there is but many times like it's like oh no because you're so busy working 12 jobs that you don't have time to read books or how would you know about I don't know Sartre or whomever like like whatever the cultural signifiers are, mm -hmm. um, and I I it's just one of those things where like it's so baked into what everyone does. Yeah, and I think when myself you included that it's heard, like yeah right, and that's classism. I think once you start layering in the other isms, right? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. You know racism and anti blackness, right? Like yes. all of a sudden it's also like. Well, not only are you poor and working twelve jobs, but black people just—they're not that smart. They're not that smart. They and, don't know that. Yeah. Well, and so—and then if you're a black, if you're a woman, mm -hmm. well, you really can't do math and right, science right. either. So now you are a, you know, quote unquote poor black woman, a poor Mexican migrant woman, mm -hmm. and people's expectations of you are so small, so diminished, so limited, um, that if you're not embedded in opportunities to connect to adults or just to voices that can counter that um, or adults that can counter that or at least voices if they're not adults that can counter that you it'll become its own kind of prophetic manual for absolutely. your life absolutely and that's un and it's unfair that we use things like resilience as like a litmus test for kids mm -hmm. When is resilience is a trait of systems. It's an ecological mm -hmm. thing mm -hmm. um, that births, you know, or, or provides access and resources for people to adapt, as opposed to it being a, a like semi one dimensional character trait. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like we talk about that child is resilient. It's like ah. <laughs> That framework is gonna screw us all up. You I've, know? I've actually I've had a lot of conversations with um, the CEO of my organization about that because that that is a phrase that certain people at the nonprofit that I work for use a lot. They mean well from it, and and it 
it took me a couple of years to come to this opinion that I have now. And, and I, I told him this on a phone call that we, we had, and, and he honestly like sat with it and is thinking about it. You know, but one of the things I said to him, I, I said, I'm very concerned about when we constantly talk about helping young people develop resilience because to what end? And I, I said, because my fear is that we're just we're teaching black and brown children to get better at taking shit from people and and taking shit from white people and white people of a of a, pers a particular economic class which is it's going to be horrible i said now something that is empowering for me and this is a very personal choice other people can disagree is that now if it is resilience in terms of you know really keeping the foresight on like what the vision is to like get to the other side and then either subvert or dismantle existing systems or completely overhaul them so that the resilience doesn't need to exist in the first place for future generations that I'm down with you know to the degree of like you know it takes a certain amount of my father had to have a certain amount of grit and resilience to make it out of the West Side of yeah, Chicago. Yeah, but we're talking about fortitude, right? We're talking about that idea of stick to itness. We're humans. Resilience is naturally baked into mm -hmm. our species. Yeah. It is the same way that systems, like we're sitting outside looking at trees and all this vegetative life, like these are resilient systems resilience in the ways that we are trying to like co-opt if you will this idea and fit it into the concepts around character development really it's like if there's a resilient child it's because there's a resilient system that birthed uh through experience and interaction absolutely it yeah. birthed a skill set or, or a series of skill sets and character traits in this child that we are calling like kind of package style resilient or resilience but there's such granularity in there that really matters and nuance because it's like well what skills were developed and how did they help that person keyword adapt mm -hmm. to what is happening yeah. to them and particularly when it's out of their control uh and and like but that's not the nature of the conversation right now oh no not and at that all that is yeah. really my fear and why I am, you know, maneuvering through these worlds that um, you you know I'm a part of, um, and 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 specifically speaking up like this and bringing literature to bear on this end and challenging back this like reductionist nomenclature, this reductionist language that we're using because it makes people feel good, mm -hmm. and it makes them feel like they've achieve something or because we, again we go back to foundations and philanthropy and blah 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 people need these big markers to be moving towards and because people are not content experts and or academia is not without its own bearings of corporate influence and corporate interactions and bias, that the, bias. yeah you know that, that that is a massive business construct um academia and so like in research so like all those things they're they're uh, Word it comes from as a confluence, right? It's all happening at the mm -hmm. same time. And then we're trying to make sense out of it. But what's not primary is human development, well-being across the developmental lifespan, and what are the best ways to organize our information, the communication around that information outward, best way to organize around metrics for the long term, not for these short, quick turnarounds. 
And, and you know, even thinking about our, our work of like white influences on my art, I think about navigating that world as art. It takes a certain amount of creativity, intuitive stuff, intuition. You got to read up on things. I have to be smart enough to know when I'm completely dumb on a topic, but but dumb in what way, right? Like there's, a, you know, not being aware of the literature and the research that currently exists, but that also is only part of the journey. There's also just being ignorant of the lived experience and the lived kind, the varying kinds of lived experiences that can fit under one moniker or one area of interest. And so knowing when to go into those worlds, and that's where I bring my arts practice heavily. Art is such as, such a, an amazing way of opening up dialogue, mm -hmm. of leveling playing fields that classism and intellectualism introduces where people don't feel worthy enough to participate. They don't feel worthy enough for their voice to be heard. I take a lot of uh, issue um, and respectfully often challenge people um, when I hear about this, this phrase, giving voice. That's to me like saying, like, I gave somebody sight. Mm -hmm. You're born with that. Right. Um, and I don't mean that to sound ableist in any way, right? Like, not everybody is born being able to see. So right. I do want to honor that. People do lose their eyesight. I do want to say that. But nobody gives you your eyesight, right. right? Right. And if we want to talk about who gave it, there's a whole other space of conversation in the world of, like, comparative religious studies mm -hmm. and anthropology around, you know, religious practices that we can dig into on that. But outside of that realm there's no way to talk about like who gave you sight yeah it's 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 a it's a very deficit based construct that it, which is now manifest yeah it's it's deficit based it's it's deficit based now with voice nobody i didn't give you voice michael but what i can do is amplify your voice i can also silence your voice. Mm -hmm. I can Absolutely. intimidate the hell Absolutely. out of your voice. I can minimize your voice and reduce your voice. I can threaten your voice. I can silence your voice, but I can't give you voice, can't, yeah. right? I can share platform for mm -hmm. your voice, mm -hmm. right? Like, I, there's a lot I can do with your voice, but I can't give you voice. Right. And I think that is part and parcel to this larger conversation around rethinking our paradigms and restructuring our concepts around things like resilience and blah, 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 blah. And I always say, like, we're moving, we're moving and iterating ourselves towards um, our best, but also collectively, that means iterating ourselves towards these definitions that will help us in the long term. Absolutely. We're iterating ourselves towards constructs that really are built on everything we've known, but give us a way to organize the best of what we've known, uh, the common um blind spots things mm -hmm. we don't know right and then the common trash and be like right this stuff mm -hmm. is malarkey we mm -hmm. need to throw that mm -hmm. out it is not nature versus nurture like the fact that there are people that don't even know that anymore right. like that we failed as a society right so we've got to organize that space and throw that out and so again going back to white influences for me some of it's in art some of it's in academics like there are some strong white academics that are putting forward leading thought around human consciousness, um, the role of emotions and emotional circuitry neurologically uh, or neuronally, right, in terms of like how we understand activity even in a number of ways or how we understand behavior in a number of ways, right? And then the social influence on our development and our, that circuitry, right? Like there's there are people, Antonio Damasio is one guy who is like doing 
heavy deep work him and his research lab he's got other researchers underneath him who are brilliant um but they're they're doing some really fascinating work been a huge influence on me as a thinker since 26 i read his first one of my first articles from him and was like oh my god I want to follow this guy around. I almost moved to California to try to go to school, hey, that's but I was like, "Nope, yeah. stay right here." Stay that's right powerful. Here. So, so you you have you have done an amazing segue where I you know I want to uh, get into um, a lot of the motivation for me wanting to do this podcast, and you know I'm you know I'm loving this conversation. You know, you and I have we engage in these a lot of these conversations a lot, so I feel like you know uh, this is only like a fraction of what we could like fully get into. Um, you know, but the you know the the piece about white influences, particularly white artistic influences, it's 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 very fascinating for me because I I think that, you know, even the story of how black artists and black creatives encounter their white influences, I you know I think it speaks volumes about just what their lived experience has been, and it informs you know and their reaction to that I think informs you know like what their current lived experience is. Um, and so you and I had, uh, so there's a couple things that I wanna, I wanna go over. One, when, so when we were texting back and forth and I said, oh, you know, this, uh, you know, the, the point of this podcast is uh, black artists talking about their white influences. I'm curious as to like what your like reaction was because I I feel like you were kind of like huh that's weird but- oh yeah well no my immediate reaction was I don't want to talk about my white influences I want to talk about talk about my black influences mm-hmm. because again we have created so much of what is American culture in terms of um, just from a completely economic standpoint mm-hmm. for a second we have created much of what has become American culture. Um, and what much of what has been exported, mm-hmm. um, particularly creative kind of media-based things um, of old and of new, mm-hmm. right? Like we we and we get very little credit for that. Um, so that that was my initial thought. I was like, I don't care about my white influences. Then my second thought was like, do I have a lot of white influences? I don't really know. I mean, I, I know I have them, but I don't really know how many I have, you know, mm-hmm. that was my, that was my second thought. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. my third thought is, oh, this is provocative. Yeah. <laughs> and, and honestly, like that, that was uh, a big part of the reason why I wanted to do it. One was, um, you know, to be completely honest, like, like, you know, part of this is very selfish on my part because there is a part of me that the, the more I hear, black artists talk about white influences that they have it makes me personally feel like less of a space alien you know and and you know that's just something that i want to be completely honest with and and i have really accepted the fact that that might be a big turnoff for some people i think no matter what it's provocative um and i think that that's very powerful and telling and i think that there's like a certain thing um that i actually like super want to deconstruct with that um, you know, and you and I had this text message exchange about it. Another thing that I'm super interested in really subverting is the the old narrative of the white intellectuals and academics talking about black art. The founders of the source are two white guys. You know, like a lot of the great jazz essayists are, are like white dudes. It's like you, you can't really find black people that are getting published. You know, I'm sure that there are a bazillion 
black folks who really have the most insightful things to say about jazz, but Downbeat Magazine isn't publicizing what they're saying. Yeah, I mean, I hear you. I think for me, part of it's like, and like, I've been thinking about it, and I'm like, I don't, I don't have that many white influences in my art making. It's not an aesthetic that I really cared for much. So and so, I'll I'll name a couple, sure. right? Like, well, oh, and and I I want to I want to step back for a second. Um, and I think I alluded to this when, or I directly mentioned it when we were texting back and forth. Um, but I, you know, I seem to recall it was a little bit before I got married. And you and I, we went to that restaurant bar at like Twelfth and Walnut or something. It, it was like, it's like a musical theater theme place. Mm-hmm. So I remember, like, do you remember that? Yeah, I do. So we were there, and I feel like there was, it it was like a Bernadette Peters retrospective or something, and it was like her singing all of the hits. I mean, I don't really know musicals, so, but like, she was sort of singing like you know the the classics of like show tunes. Um, and I feel like there were like four songs in a row that like you sang from like, you know, beginning to end. Yeah. Um, and, and like, for me, I just remember sort of like looking over and being like, oh, well like this is a side of Michael that like, I've never really seen before. It's not good, bad or whatever, but like, it's just, it's, it, it's a different part of who he is that like, I don't necessarily see. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, and, and like, that was also like a lot of the thinking, like, you know, as I sort of look back onto what's the road that got me to want to make this particular podcast and go into these conversations, like, you know, that was a lot of it. And also for me, the, you know, the conversation and even like the wrestling with it, um, I think is you know is is what I'm interested in. So yeah, so this idea around the aesthetic and why I said mm-hmm. like there's a certain there's an aspect of the aesthetic that I just don't really care for it. It's very domineering. Mm-hmm. The white aesthetic when it comes to the world of art and media is so prescribed sometimes so controlled when you're talking about industry and it's so gatekeeper styled right that it is very stifling i i don't find there to be um the room for the kind of growth that you saw in jazz right so can can you give me examples of of that yeah so as uh, let's just take the music industry at large part of the complexity with the music industry was that people were putting a business construct around an art form that they did not have deep roots in let alone many roots at all from what was being commodified and commercialized and so you had this interesting game of marketing that's emerging and labeling of genres to try to organize and, and present to people a thing. Um, slave songs, quote unquote, slave songs became work songs, work songs, and the blues emerged, mm-hmm. right? And, and then jazz comes out of the blues, but the blues are still going on. 
at the same time? And when did the blues stop and just become jazz? Did the blues artists no longer make jazz? So it starts to get complicated. And for non-practitioners, let me rephrase that, it gets complicated. For the practitioners, those lines are arbitrary. They sure. don't really exist. Yeah. And you, so then the, the, the field is further iterating, right? And people are coming into the field, people like Benny Goodman, um, and, and there are other white folks who are coming into the field, but the people who are moving the field are still moving the field as they're also like continuing to set the cultural foundations and the phenomena that is the music. And there is a, there's growth, there's spontaneity, there's, um, always space to add and to push it to the next level. I mean, part of the goal sometime people got together to purposely figure out how keep pushing that. Let's push mm -hmm. it again. Go further. Let's go further out. Let's try it again. And so that's all happening. And then you have this introduction of R&B, right? And the first like time R&B is like being defined, it was, um, I can't remember this technically. I mean, excuse me, like verbatim or, uh, but like, it's like jazz rhythms and chords that are more danceable mm -hmm. yeah. right and that became r&b then it's fascinating that you have aretha franklin marvin gay um i mean you, we can just go down a list of other folks out at that time Dionne warwick right there nancy wilson they're doing jazz cuts blues cuts r&b cuts and pop cuts all at the same time right marvin gay is covering witchcraft the masquerade is over um he's Aretha Franklin's doing um Moon River with a big band mm -hmm. at the same time she's doing Sweet Bitter Love and other blues songs uh Stella by Starlight you know like uh, or excuse me Skylark I don't know if Aretha ever sang Stella by Starlight but the song in my head I heard was Skylark Skylark and I said the other one but there were th these arbitrary lines they didn't exist for these guys, it was all black American music, but it was an industry that had kept having to try to figure out how are we presenting this and got to label it this so people know how to figure out what they like and what they don't like. And so we can pump a kind of artist to you. Um, it just th that fractures culture. And, and so now you fast forward. We have black people that don't understand that the sounds that are available to them are mass and plentiful. That's a part of who you mm -hmm. are at your core. Um, and that's something we have to reckon with. And I again, I think in the 21st century, we have the ability to organize and reorganize and figure out how we um, work on that. I'm actually working on a an amazing project like this right now at the Village of Arts and Humanities and um, a project that's funded by Pew with some older black jazz has Odin Pope. I mean, these guys mm -hmm. who are like yeah. massive monuments in the culture. Um, and, and we're working that out, right? Because, and, and so that's what I mean by like the aesthetic part of like that journey and world of defining and building out aesthetics through that lens that they created, that white America created, like that's annoying. So, so that's one piece. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, there is my personal experience with the art, right? And so Bernadette Peters as a singer is a, a fantastic uh, interpreter of lyric and storyteller. She has one of the most incredible covers of... Um, 
a song from Into the Woods called No One Is Alone. Or You Are Not. Yeah, No One Is Alone, I believe. Beautiful. That was the song mm-hmm. I remember came on there. It's a beautiful song. Beautiful rendition. And there's something she can do with a song and a lyric and a story that is beautiful. Barbara Streisand, same thing. Um, Mel Torme is a white jazz singer. Yeah, same thing, right? What, and what's what's funny about the the Mel Torme piece, or it's funny to me, one is that Mel Torme literally the only reason who I know who Mel Torme is is because he was always referenced on Night Court. I don't know if you ever watched that show <laughs> as a kid, but yeah, but um, uh, the judge Harry Anderson, yeah, yeah. like his dream was to meet Mel Torme. And I think in one episode he shows up and, and, and like Mel Torme's nickname is the Velvet Fog. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So like, so one, I, when I was a kid, I didn't know that there were jazz vocalists because I only knew of the musicians. And I really kind of thought that jazz stopped existing after 1965 because my dad doesn't really listen to anything after 1965. So I didn't really know that Mel Torme was like, uh, you know, an actual serious person. I think... I might have thought that he was actually like a TV character because I only heard about him on a night court. But, um, you know, a, a common friend and associate of ours, Mr. Shane Frederick, mm-hmm. has also at some point mentioned uh, that he was a fan of Mel Torme. And I think it was part of him talking about how overrated he thought Frank Sinatra was. Maybe. Oh, yeah, same yeah. boat. Yeah, same I, boat. yeah, he yeah, he was he was sort of like Frank Sinatra, not nothing that good. A, not, over... Nothing against Frank. Right. I, I do think Frank had talent. Yeah. But yeah, no, there are other white singers yeah. who uh, I'll yeah. I mean Tony Bennett. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So day, Tony Bennett Tony Bennett is my favorite as an older guy actually because yeah. like you know Tony Bennett's getting up and singing these songs and like his voice is crystal clear. Yeah. Those high notes are soaring. You know, when he did um, For Once in My Life at that Stevie Wonder tribute mm, on mm-hmm. CBS, I mean, I was in my house, like, yelling at my television practically at one point, just like, sing, brother, because it was amazing. I, like, stood up. The music is really good. I stand up. Yeah. No, that that's a, like, so In my house, yeah. I will do that. If someone's yeah. ripping on the TV, I'll just stand up. Lettucey was on... Um, I don't remember if it was the Lady of Soul Train Awards or the Soul Train Awards. And it was an Aretha Franklin tribute, and she sang "Ain't No Way," and my God, mm, mm-hmm. electrifying! Yeah, you, and of course the audience is like yeah. ricocheting yeah. out of their chairs, you know, at points because she just murdered that song in a good way. Anyhow, yeah, uh, no, no, that's that's great. This this is something I'm actually wondering about. Um, explain to me like what it is about Barbara Streisand, because again, for me. As someone who did not really grow up listening to uh, Broadway songs, musical theater, I know of Barbara Streisand as like this woman who's like sometimes uh, in like you know she's talked about a lot. I didn't really know that she was a singer because oh, I'm coming man. up in the nineties, yeah, yeah, yeah. so like I only know her where like she hates Republicans <laughs> and Republicans hate her, and she plays uh, you know. Uh, Ben Stiller's mom in Meet the Fockers 2 or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think the the only song that I've heard of hers... Well, I remember a couple things. I remember reading a little bit of Miles Davis's autobiography, and he talks about like the first time he saw her in New York, and she's only like 17 or 18. So I remember thinking, like, oh, well, if Miles Davis is talking about her, like she must be a 
like a pretty good singer. And then I'm interested in what did he say about her? Do you remember? Yeah, um, he said that he was like really blown away by her. And yeah. it was I you know, I think the story was that like he went to some club and um, you know, and, and everyone said like, oh, you know, you got to hit, you know, you got to hear this, this woman, you know, she's only 18, but she's like one of the greatest people ever. And he was sort of like, fuck that. Like, you know, <laughs> like I'm an adult. She probably sucks. And then he saw her and he was like, oh yeah, she's amazing. I, I think that's what it was. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, I think the only Barbara Streisand song that I n- know is, uh, did she do the way we were yeah, or, she did. okay. And right. then. There's a song called like a, um, like a woman in love or or uh, I don't know I I was going through a sort of like soft rock white jazz rabbit hole on YouTube one day and gotcha. I think I was listening to a lot of uh, the Karen Carpenter and then a Barbra Streisand song. Gotcha. I like Karen Carpenter too, by the way. I like the Carpenters in general. Oh, the, the Carpenters um, are amazing. You know, it's interesting because Barbra Streisand and Dionne Warwick kind of emerged onto the scene around the same time period. Um, and both to me set these crazy high bars for what it meant to be um, the mainstream's aesthetic of like the the popular female mm-hmm. singer. Mm-hmm. Um, Barbara Streisand has impeccable technique and. A gift again with telling a story. Um, the feeling and emotion, like Barbara Streisand has got soul, mm. mm-hmm. and I think many people don't know that about her. No, I and it's not yeah. the kind of soul that's like a genre, right? Um, it's the kind of soul that like you can't teach right that's the thing about soul music is like you can get better at expressing mm-hmm. but that the connection part like you can't really teach that that's learned through experience you, you know what i mean oh yeah no absolutely absolutely um, and, and and so like and and, and i'm going to play devil's advocate on myself it's like learning via experience is still learning like it's right. a form of teaching but like you're it's like going to school for music. Mm-hmm. He, you're only going to get but so much right. through the teaching. Right. It's the Absolutely. same with acting, right? You're Absolutely. only going to get so that you got to be put into the experience and do and mess up and figure it out, blah, 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 blah. And yeah. some people um, are born, I guess, a, de- a little more connected in that space or they're in the experiences at very early ages next to these people that have master that like if you think about the family that Dion Warwick comes from it's the family that Whitney Houston comes from mm. it's the family that Sissy Houston comes mm. from and mm-hmm. Dee Dee Warwick and um you know the drinkards the drinkard mm. singers right like the they that is a singing family my god that is a singing family and it is, it is a level of mastery that's bar none and like so many people would never know that Dion Warwick could literally sing as high as Whitney Houston. Mm. The same yeah. amount of power. I mean, like I've spent hours going through footage and live concerts yeah. and all kinds of stuff. I'm just like, what? 
what? This is crazy, right? Send this to my friends and all my music friends. They're like, bro, I had no idea, right? And talk with some older folks who are in the know. They're like, child, you ain't know. And I'm like, mm-hmm. we ain't know. Mm-hmm. We young. Mm-hmm. We don't know. We just know her as like Dion Whitney's cousin, and she smokes mad cigarettes. Right. And got yeah. caught with weed uh, in her <laughs> lipstick case, you know, all those joints, right? Like, that's right. what I know uh, or knew, right? So I think one of the things that I take away from all of this stuff, though, is that my white influences love the black influences. Mm. So many mm-hmm. of them mm-hmm. love them. Mm-hmm. That's what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Even my non-white influences, like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, mm-hmm. they're failed R&B blues cover bands. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. You know, it's fun. I just saw Amazing Grace, and Mick Jagger is in the back clapping and standing yeah. up by himself, having yeah. a good old time. Yeah, and and, and what, what's amazing about that, you know, to, to, to add to it is that the, you know, the 60s, era rolling stones they're they're trying to be black r&b bands you know like you know they're 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 doing the 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 thin ties like you know like they're they're doing that whole look the 70s and 80s rolling stones is trying to be modern day tina turner like like mick jackers shaking and gyrating (laughs) thing it's it's totally copying uh tina turner i mean and john lennon has gone on record over and over and over again basically you know saying yes they were influenced by elvis obviously influenced by tons of black people influenced by buddy holly but like john lennon wanted to be chuck berry paul mccartney wanted to be little richard when you hear paul mccartney do his really like rock songs it's completely copying little richard's vocal style right like exactly exactly and in fact the Beatles, one of their um, biggest selling albums that came out in 1965 is called Rubber Soul. The title came from a phrase, Plastic Soul, that Paul is recorded saying in the studio after um, they did a, a, a song called I'm Down, which is like Paul trying to do a Little Richard song. And he kept saying, Plastic Soul, baby, Plastic Soul. And the whole idea is that like, they don't really got the soul. They're white dudes from Liverpool. Like they're trying to do this very particular black American Savannah, Georgia, like all of the, the contradictions and the pain of being a human being, particularly a black man in Savannah, Georgia at that time that manifests itself through little Richard. Like that's fucking the American psychosis right there coming out in music. And it's like, Paul, like you ain't got it. You can't do it. And <laughs> and you're kind of at least self aware enough to be like, yeah, you know, I'm trying to do plastic soul. So yeah, I just wanted to. Yeah, add no, no, to what and you're I saying. appreciate that because I think that's so right. I have a lot of family in Savannah. Mm. This is interesting. Yeah, uh, Naomi's um, dad is from Savannah originally. You no, are Naomi definitely are cousins. cousins. <laughs> from St. Croix to Savannah, that's from wild. Oh man, we gotta do DNA testing. Yeah, now. absolutely. Like, gotta absolutely. We've gotta be like fifth cousins. Yeah. That, that's actually wild. Um, um, yeah. Uh, interesting side note about that. Um, just on DNA tests. So my mom texted me and my brothers last night because she did a DNA test and we're a uh, fifty-four or her side of the family is fifty-four percent Nigerian. No, that's a lot of Nigerian. Yeah, a lot of Nigerian. Mostly Nigerian. That's about five cool. percent Kenyan. Eleven percent 
from Sierra That's Leone. That's interesting because King is pretty far. East. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm very like I'm very curious as to like how that you know happened. Um, yeah, but yeah, mostly Nigerian. Um, also, oddly enough, we're about uh, like a. I think eleven percent. It's either like between five and ten percent actually, like italian spanish iberian mm-hmm. which you know like the spanish i understand italian i'm kind of like not sure how that happened but you know i mean it could sort of just be like mediterranean in I was general gonna say, yeah. you know spain because it's into... not that africa and yeah. spain practically touch oh absolutely you know? absolutely <laughs> yeah i mean you know i mean and you know portugal was in angola and mozambique yeah. until like the mid 70s absolutely but yeah i just wanted to you know so no, I, yeah I, I i'm thinking about doing it because i yeah I was scared about the DNA thing. I was like, well, people already have my DNA. Yeah, Naomi's like, she's like seriously kind of concerned about being cloned, which I'm like, I wouldn't put it past someone, but I, it does feel a little different to be like, oh no, like a significant part of my family is from Nigeria, not Africa. West Africa. Yeah, West Africa. You know, it's like, it's, it's kind of empowering, but I've, you know, uh, we got a little off track, but you know, yeah. No, no, it's cool. It's you, cool. you, you like the you like the white folks who like are understanding the the black influences that I they like, have. I like the white folks that are honest about mm. their mm-hmm. influences yeah. and honest about the state of music. Um, I also really I love classical music. I really do. Like Brahms and Chopin? Yeah. I love... Um, when classical music is sung the right way, it is quite a feat. Um, There's actually a black guy named Lawrence Brownlee. Really? A fantastic singer. Oh, my God. His voice, it sounds like the heavens have mm. parted. And, you know, I, this is going to sound stereotypical, but, like, the three tenors, I heard them as a kid. I was like, that's amazing. You know what I mean? And so, again, when I talk about, like, the white aesthetic, it is not, like, white art, per se. Mm-hmm. It's what the dominant power in this country, which mm-hmm. is white America, yeah. what they've done to create these categories in the 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 um, constraints that became the aesthetics, mm, mm-hmm. right? And that they tried to force on us in mm-hmm. many ways. Um, and I, I don't I, even, I don't even disagree with that. Yeah. You know? And I, and I think it's problematic and I think the good thing is we're fighting it back. And I think there are white people that have been fighting it back from the beginning too, right? Like there are poets who are like, fuck yeah. that. You're not going to tell me how to write poems, right? Um, but that doesn't, you know, I'll say this too, as an arts educator, um, one of the, even I'm not currently teaching art, but it's someone that did for a while. Um, particularly, you know, I was teaching music and singing, did some songwriting classes, did some theater writing stuff. Um, there, this isn't me trying to say there should be no rules. There should be just straight like we call creative lawlessness, right? Because you still are trying to communicate, mm-hmm. right? Like, and so people communicate in particular kinds of ways. And so depending on your audiences, et cetera, you're going to want to do things that help it land enough, right? The goal is not to make something that just like straight caters to the most base needs of your audience. But the flip side of that is like, unless you really made it to sit in your room, you do want people to interact with it. And 
you don't want to necessarily like control for their responses, right? But at the flip side, the goal is not to be misunderstood. Like that's not right. the intention from the beginning. And so like when I would teach writing to kids or young people or adults even, I would always say, you know, don't think about this as like we're trying to box in your creativity. Think about it as like if I handed you an essay that had no punctuation, it's going to be annoying mm-hmm. to try to make sense yeah. of it. And you're just going to be like, fuck it, I don't want to deal with this. Yeah. Um, and unless you want somebody to potentially have that reaction to your art, which is fine, that's your choice, then you're going to want to do certain things sure. structurally just to make sure people like are getting the framing right. Mm-hmm. And then they let them interpret and all that stuff. Sure. But you got to set them up to be yeah. able to do that, right? That's how I kind of look at this thing with aesthetics, where it's like... It's not about like, should it be this or should it be that because of why? It's more like, is it going to help someone like in the communication world receive what you're saying? Right. Whether or not they agree with it, like what you're saying, mm-hmm. whatever. We just yeah. got to get through like the base level yeah, yeah. of communicating. And that for that end, if aesthetics were to have more of that kind of a thought process to it, more readily or like if the conversation was settled there i would be more comfortable with this generic of like influences and aesthetics and that that kind of conversation at large with people i think the issue for me is that like aesthetics is about standards yeah well i but i and influences sure start to come into that world and i think it can it just gets tricky right well i mean but honestly to me you know and we'll we'll wrap up in a few minutes because obviously you know we we could talk about this for hours um but you know definitely want to have a frame to this podcast you know and some punctuation so we have to put a period in it at some point and end um but i feel like what you're saying is is that it seems like to a certain degree um, you are more calling out the the white aesthetic, broadly generalizing the white aesthetic around um, the the framing and the commodification and the categorization of art forms, um, and not necessarily like the concept of having white influences. I mean, because like it's it's well, it's, no, it's, I think it's, it's it sounds like you're you're, you're taking more issue with like the A and R person. No, here. Uh, so I think those two things go hand in hand, right? When well, so question yeah. with that. So do you think that the Mel Tormes, the Bernadette Peters, and the Barbara Streisands of the world are separated from that, or is or are they? Yeah, because um, like do like do do they feed into that or are they? A, I think a bystander. We, I think we all feed into it. Oh yeah, yeah. Right, because and this is what I mean. Like I think it goes hand in hand. Um, the dominant aesthetics uh, tend to direct how people are going to commodify themselves and try to make a living. Mm-hmm, yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and and that's what I mean by like it's it's this duo thing where to me it's like the dominant aesthetic at one point was was more overtly black. Mm-hmm. Right? And it, it the powers that be had to do some stuff in there. Um when you, and and as that iterated, right? 
things started to shift to, to the point now where, you know, and this conversation came up when Adele won her last round of all those Grammys and people were just kind of like, is she getting music? I mean, is she getting Grammys for like making black music or making sounds that are predominantly black, but in this kind of aesthetic that makes them a bit more palpable. Mm-hmm. And did we not give Beyonce an award for being her authentically contemporary black ass self? Right? Like, that was a huge question on people's minds. Mm-hmm. It was a huge question on Adele's mind. Yeah. Because she said it, right? Yeah. And she put that out there, right? And I, that's where I think we're at right now. It's just like, I don't, I don't know any longer, uh, like, where the conversation lands because it's just like, it's, it, if money is involved, it gets really funny. Mm-hmm. Right, because we're not. It'd be different if, like, if you ask me who are my greatest vocal influences, I actually I don't honestly know no white like the list that comes mm-hmm. up. There are no white people that come sure. up there, right? You ask me who, um, my favorite songwriters are. There's a couple that pop up there. But not that many still, right? Um, but if I were to think about my influences on like the business of music, I might have more white influences there. Actually, first one that came to mind is David Foster. Who's that? Um, David Foster is a record producer and engineer. He did. Um, he produced. Um, a bunch of the ego stuff that blew up. Oh, okay. But he also did um, After the Love is Gone for Earth, Wind, and Fire. Mm. would have never guessed. Mm-hmm. But I, that blew yeah. my mind. I was like, sure. huh? that's wild, yeah. right? Um, and has gone on to do, he did I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. He okay. actually produced The Bodyguard. I think he produced the whole soundtrack and then did a bunch of songs off of there. I mean, he's got massive hits yeah. that span. Generations he did work with Cheryl Lynn, if mm, I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Got to be real is him, mm-hmm. right? So really? Like, yeah, like you would have would have never yeah. guessed, right? Yeah. Is is he he's a, is he American? Yeah, at least Canadian. He's Canadian. So what what I find super interesting about that is that um, Rod Temperton, who produced the Off the Wall album, wrote the song Off the Wall, wrote Baby Be Mine on Thriller. Um, so like a lot of like the funkiest Michael Jackson songs there are, he wrote he wrote the um, um, mystery that uh, you know Anita Baker made famous, which the Manhattan Transfer also did their own version. But essentially, Rod Temperton, the guy who wrote some of the funkiest tunes for Michael Jackson, is white and British. I had always assumed he was a black dude from Detroit. Right. And then when I was listening to like the 25th anniversary of Off the Wall or whatever, and they had the interview, and you hear this guy talking in this very clearly British accent. And then I um, did a Google search because I'm like, oh, he's a black Brit. Cool. And then I was like, oh, no, like he's a white dude. And he was in that band Heat Wave in the 70s that had this, oh, that nice. had Boogie Nights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like, yeah. and so, like, uh, yeah, so it sounds like this David Foster is the Canadian Rod Temperton. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And like, and I hope it's clear. Like, I'm not saying that white people don't have soul. Right? No, no, no. I, I don't think you're saying right, cool. that. No, I I think honestly, what I'm what I'm more interested in is, um, and I think maybe 
we're looking at the word influences in a we maybe have different definitions of what influences mm-hmm. means i mean or or maybe you know like the the like the phrase is maybe more like affection because i mean like it, it oh see actually that's a different conversation to right. me right because when i think about like so affection is like how i feel about it yeah influences i'm like that's to me like incubating i'm incubating sounds it's I'm thinking about like how I want to take things from it and figure it out for my own. And like, it's influencing my writing. It's influencing my singing. Um, it's influencing this or that. Right. Like when I hear Luther Vandross, I got into Dion Warwick because of my love for Luther Vandross, Luther Vandross talked about being influenced heavily by the singing of Dion Warwick. Right. And there's this, um, clip of him in an interview where he's like, I, you know, I play certain songs for people. I'm like, listen, she's going to breathe right here. She's going to attack this note. No vibrato. Hold it. Vibrato here. And then she's going to move that note again by the end. But that's like a 16-second moment that's just like unparalleled, right? And I'm like, that's a lot of... Th-. Like, he had a lot of thought in listening to her. Like, it was clearly mm-hmm. an influence. Yeah. And the way he described it, I was like, oh, he does that. Wait, was that's where he and it's it made him partly so signature, right? And so I went and then listened to these records of her live and whatnot. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, that's wild. In fact, you're not just influencing Luther. There's nobody out around you at right. that time yeah. singing like that. The closest is maybe Barbara Streisand, um, and there was this woman in the UK named Cilla Black mm, who mm-hmm. would yeah. try to do these records right after. Dion really like literally put them out. Her most famous one probably being anyone who had a heart. Okay. Um, but after a while, like burns out on Cilla Black. Like it just doesn't go anywhere after that. And Dion's still moving along. But like when I think about influences, I think about that's what I'm thinking about. It's like what is shifting and moving individuals, the industry, and how. And like there's always been this counter influencing thing happening, particularly in music. I know that one the most is because like I've been in that world a little bit and like studied it and blah blah blah, uh, but there's always been this counter influence of like the dominant outside influencers and then the people in the work mm-hmm. and trying to balance that and then the people that the dominant influencers are inserting into the work, kind of that um, Cadillac record. Now, um, excuse me, um, if you've seen uh, Dreamgirls, mm-hmm. that whole got I mean me I never a saw Cadillac, it. got me a Cadillac yeah. car yeah. Right, like that. That's it, right? It's like that. That is like the the cleanest stage version of, of what I'm talking about with influencers and power, and that that's the other thing I think about that context is like power. Yeah. See, and I I think for me, I mean, and it, and it also just might even be because I mean we've we've perhaps had a, a very different artistic journey. Is that so? Like, I'm trying to think of. Um, so there's a director called, uh, th- so this uh, guy, Noah Baumbach, I don't know how to pronounce his name. It's either Baumbach or Baumbach or uh, I don't know. Um, but like he directed The Squid and the Whale. And yeah, I mean, so he does a lot of these movies where it's just like people just sitting around tables talking like, you know, or, or like Judd Apatow, you know, 40 year old virgin. This is 40 knocked up. If, if I made films like Apatow is an influence on me partially because it's like well there's a lot of affection for the work that he creates but it's also like oh well if I did stuff kind of like what he does like I would try to bring in 
um, like some of what he does, like even if the subject matter is is very, very, very different, you know, because mm-hmm. like I'm actually contemplating, uh, you know, in a perfect world, I would want to make a Netflix series, like a 10, a 10 episode series where it's really just like slice of life, black stories where nothing really significant happens. People just sort of like talk about their lives. Uh, you know, like, uh, it, you know, it's like mumblecore. Like, you know, it's, you know, just people talking about stuff. Right. But I would specifically do it on each episode would take place on a day when a black person was killed by a, a white police officer. Oh, wow. That wouldn't necessarily be referenced in the in the subject matter at all. And like, and, and it might even just be like, you know, uh, you know, uh, June 15th, 2018. Because for me, part of the thing that like I, I kind of want, would want to unpack is how on a fucked up level, this shit is so common. It's a sort of like, Naomi and I don't even talk about these things anymore because it's like, I mean, it's like saying that the sun went up and down, unfortunately. Like, um, but so I say all of that to say that like, you know, I'm really interested in exploring like, oh, well, you know, how, how does a self-described Pan-Africanist and a Garveyite, Garveyite like myself somehow incorporate white mumble core into films that I make, mm. you know? So like for me, like, you know, that, like that's where influences are coming from. And for me, influences and affection is synonymous because it's like, well, if you have affection for the thing, it's going to creep into the work that you do on some level, even if it's just like, I'm going to take the stage like Streisand did because like, she's a fucking boss. Like, right. you know, I'm not even thinking of like, these people change the world. So, I, you. I mean, I think part of it for me, too, is like, am I hearing your influence or am I hearing the influence of my own folks on you back? At oh, home? yeah, definitely. And that that's the other thing that I'm processing mm-hmm. while I'm sitting mm-hmm. here. And I there's a part of me that's kind of like. And, and I don't have answers on this. It's like. I give credit to that because there's still work that you've done there, but then also like. At what. Or to what end or potential like detriment of lineage am I participating in? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. If I'm not at least on my end doing the deeper dig right. research to to fill that out, um, because if you know if we're not careful, twenty five years from now, Adele is known as the queen of soul. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean it's. And, it's, and, and we no, gotta be honest about no, that. we do, we do. I mean, and that, that's something that I, like I've wrestled with of, um, you know, particularly my affection for the Beatles, and a lot of that is what motivated me to actually buy a Chuck Berry's Greatest Hits CD of knowing, like, well, well, Chuck Berry is the guy that really influenced a lot of these folks. Um, and then a thing that I wrestle with is I honestly, I like the Beatles more than I like Chuck Berry. And, and is it a genuine connection with the music that they're making and the fact that they're sort of closer to the modern rock and roll manifestation than it was in the 50s, regardless of who was making it? Because it's like, I don't listen to like Buddy Holly or the Big Bopper. Or is it, the fact that like the Beatles mystique, which is a very Eurocentric construct is what I was sort of raised in and is very appealing. So like, you know, is it, do I genuinely like the music that they, that they did? Like, I just like it more, or is there just a bigger narrative about the, the co-option of 
the black aesthetic that I'm unknowingly participating in or is it like some or is it some combination of the two like I don't know you know yeah I mean I think I don't know I think these are real things we've got to figure out because like at the same which is part of the reason why I wanted to have these conversations because it's like 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 this whole like this sort of reckoning with all of it is a lot of what I want to unpack as well it's like yes and right so like I think about Jesse J who I think is a fantastic singer I mean, golly, and and God, she did. She's got plenty of soul, um, and she makes music that's uh, of a black aesthetic for sure, uh, and it's considered you know pop R and B, whatever pop of R and B influence or R and B with pop influence. I don't know what people are calling it, but it's definitely in all that boat. Um, and like, do I feel like she's taking away from the culture? I don't. You know what I mean, but. I do honor the fact that, like, on the flip side, people are going to say things like she's British and from the UK and white. And there are black singers in America who would never get that attention for singing the same thing. Absolutely. And so it's like, yes, and like, I don't think that's her fault. Right. Right. Like, same with Adele. I don't think it's Adele's fault. This is these are larger powers that have been at play forever. Um and we just have to reckon with it now. But I enjoy her music. Yeah. You know what I mean? I enjoy, she's got plenty of songs I enjoy. Um, and she shared very hard things about her own life. She had this beautiful song called um, B-A-B-Y. And part of it, and it's around this like journey she's got with the fact that she can't have kids. Mm. And it's a beautiful song. Definitely black aesthetic. Beautiful song, though. You know, but does that and and the, but is that killing someone else's career? I don't think that song is killing someone right. else's career, right? Or their career opportunities. I think the business at large mm-hmm. is doing that, which is when I think about influencers and aesthetics. Like at that level, yeah. there's we got there's some work that needs to be done, mm-hmm. right? But yeah, well, th- this this has been a great conversation. I appreciate all of this. Yeah, we've we've really. Uh, uh, gotten to a lot of what i wanted to talk about so let's do a a quick little hit list one if there are three books that people should really read to like understand the if people are really interested in equity um solidarity with people that have been oppressed historically of really like deconstructing and decolonizing the mind what are three books that you recommend that they read what whatever just comes to your soul right off the top of bat i maybe de- decolonizing wealth is maybe one of them um i'm still reading that one so i okay. can't say exactly sure. um on that one i think root shock Okay, Root Shock. Uh, Root Shock by Dr. Mindy Fullalove is okay. a good one. Um, I think um, Medical Apartheid mm-hmm. is a really good book. It's heavy. Um, and I think Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome is another. And the reason I bring those three up is because there's a history of experience that um, – black people specifically have had in this country that has just been denied mm-hmm. like the humanity of it has mm-hmm. been denied um, the, the toll toll excuse me of it has been denied um, and those three books do an accurate job of positioning history in the context of science mm. so Mindy Fuller Love is a psychiatrist 
um, technically a social psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. So she's a medical doctor too. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's uh, focused in psychiatry and looks at like what, like the social nature sure. of diseases and all kinds of stuff. So she's a fascinating lady. Um, and her work looks at practices of displacement, mass migration, mm. um, redlining, mm-hmm. urban renewal. Fascinating. Um, and, and there's a lot of science around development, yeah. human development, that book. Um, Joy DeGry's book, the same kind of thing with looking at the impacts of slavery um, and the world that helped create policy around that and well-being around that in terms of like how policy just neglected those things right. and blah 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 but like laying it out clear for people and connecting it to the literature around the like study of like the social nature of violence and study of like the uh, impacts of trauma and chronic trauma and intergenerational trauma and then um, excuse me medical apartheid just like <laughs> blows the mm-hmm. door open on mm-hmm. all the ways that medical institutions have been pro- propped up and supported and, and completely total uh, and totally like decimating black bodies mm-hmm. for profit mm-hmm. um, knowingly um, yeah and that's indicative I think of other groups too mm-hmm. right like these are about black people and the black experience in America but you could take lots of learnings from there and apply them to other people who have been um, subjugated and oppressed in in very similar ways. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, what are three Barbara Streisand songs you recommend everyone should <laughs> should listen to to like to to really get to know the Barbara that you know? Yeah. Um... The listen to the way we were live. Okay, uh, it's pretty remarkable. Um, her version of "Cry Me a River" is good. Interesting. And Barbara Streisand singing "Rain on My Parade" as a tour de force. Okay, <laughs> she's just standing there and sings the song. You're like, sing the song, lady Jesus. Um. Yeah. Those are three good ones. Okay. And um, where, if people want to... I got to yeah. throw one out sure, just sure. for Dion Warwick, just because. Um, I think it's called I, I, I Didn't Mean to Love You. Watch a live version. Just type in I Didn't Mean to Love You live on YouTube. Okay. And watch it to the end. Yeah. Because the last two and a half minutes of that song is like a Whitney Houston number. And really? you're just like, good God, I have mm. no idea. See, so what what I find interesting about the many times that you've referenced Dionne Warwick today is my mom listened to a fair amount of Dionne Warwick when I was a kid. Like, my mom was really into... My mom was born in 1944 so in the 80s, she was listening to the music that you would expect a, a black woman to listen to. A lot of Dionne Warwick, Shaka Khan, Whitney Houston, Sade, the Pointer Sisters, like all, all the hits. I had a lot of affection for Dionne Warwick coming up. And then 
as I got older, a lot of the narrative I heard was that Dionne Warwick was like the safe, acceptable Negro, and like you know she, she, was. she was the polish, absolutely. And and I didn't, you know, um, but what I've even heard is that that Chappelle show sketch where Wayne Brady is like a you know a a, a tough ruffian when you know when he gets pulled over by the white police officer like he sings a Dion Warwick song apparently mm. like I mean I don't know because I don't know her stuff so um uh yes I mean so you know I uh, I don't really know exactly like what that means for our conversation but like I just think that like that's another interesting piece of um you know just really for like for black people and and even you know just like 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 what it means to be acceptable or not you know and sort of like the like the the Marcus Garvey paradox where a lot of what Marcus Garvey said if looked through a certain lens can be viewed as like very stereotypical republican pull yourselves up by your bootstrap and like and a lot of black folks who engage in respectability politics certainly were huge Garveyites, right. you know, and sort of like, what does that mean? I mean, and of course, like, there's no answers. So, to well, that. Whitney had the same problem when she came out, right? Yeah. Like, Clive Davis said that. At least I saw this in an interview that someone quoted him as saying that he was trying to make Whitney the black Barbara Streisand. Mm. Um, and Whitney got booed, right? I mean, yeah. this monumental moment in her career, she gets booed at the Soul Train Awards. Mm. Because of exactly what you're talking yeah. about, right? And your mom's right. Like, so, uh, Celine, um, Dion was a very refined, controlled version of this black ass singer mm. that was mm-hmm. just phenomenal. Yeah. And I mean, that, that to me is the part that I love the most about watching it over time watching this night she's got this concert from 64 for all white people and the mastery of her voice is phenomenal i mean god like just watching her you're like yo that that's so hard there's the soft singing into this mid-range bell and i mean she's doing this amazing stuff and you can feel these moments her eyes close and i'm like oh she is like she wants to let have right mm-hmm, now mm-hmm. and she's gotta keep it semi-cute and then she gets to these moments by the end and she gets to let them have it for like 15, 20 mm, seconds. Mm-hmm. And you're like, mm. you could have did that two minutes earlier. Where would this song be mm-hmm. now? Mm-hmm. Like it's, you see this in the seventies where she's freer, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And making music that's a little more like contemporary R and B, you know, for the set, for the late seventies. Um, you know, I, this is, this is going back to that conversation about when people, are controlling the aesthetics and the then influencers mm-hmm. on anybody. It's like, I, what is, I don't even know what influencer I'm getting sometimes. Right. And I gotta oh, like yeah. really, yeah, like, what absolutely. the fuck is happening there? Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, I know we were trying to close. And I just no, 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 it's all good. It's all good. Um, if people want to find the work that you are doing, you know, particularly, you know, either, artistically in the social equity space i imagine that it's very much uh in uh synthesis and symbiotic for you but if people want to support work that you are doing how can they find you yeah i have a website that's coming up it's michael bryan o-b-r-y-a-n um dot co so again mike m-i-k-e o'brien o-b-r 
Y-A-N.co. Um, it'll be some of the some just smatterings of my life up there. Awesome. People can see what I've been doing, some of the things I'll have coming up. Uh, you can get in touch with me on there. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Mystic Quest, M-I-S-T-I-C-Q-U-E-S-T, after my favorite game, Mystic Quest on Super Nintendo yeah, okay. Final All Fantasy right. Mystic Quest nice and Mystic Quest where the Y was taken so I used the I trying Ooh. to be cool gotcha gotcha yeah. respect yeah. Um, and then finally uh, is there any sort of um, parting words for the youth that are out there that might be listening to this and like specifically black youth that are just tr- not just because this is a monumental thing, black youth that are trying to find their way in this world. A, l- a lot of the motivation for me in creating this is that um, kind of the way Ryan Coogler talked about how the film Black Panther, he was trying to make a film that the 10 year old version of himself would, could like really like grow into. That's what I'm at least trying to do with this podcast is, you know, send something to my 11 year old self. Gotcha. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I decide what would. I guess the question I can frame out of that is like, what would I say to my eleven-year-old self? Yeah. What What would you say to your eleven-year-old self if if he was listening right now? You are taught to find validation in the places that have the most power. Question where power comes from and what it is and ask yourself, is that where your validation should be coming from? Excellent. Very profound. Michael, thank you very much. I really appreciate this. No problem. Thank you.